This is episode 271 of the Real Me and Colon A Movie Podcast. On this week's episode, Chase and Joel will take a look at the new DC film, Shazam. Uh, and then of course, a bunch of news and trailers dropped this week. It was CinemaCon, ladies and gentlemen. There was a bunch of footage and news that dropped. All that and more on today's Real Me In. What is going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of this movie podcast that you have chosen to listen to every single week. Uh, I am one of your co-hosts, Chase Lee, and welcome to Real Me In number uh, 271, where we will be going over Shazam as the flagship review on this uh, week's episode. It should be a lot of fun. You know, it's been getting a lot of praise, and of course, it had like that two-week, you know, uh, special screening for people that wanted to buy tickets and everything. So a lot of hype uh, kind of going into it. And of course, DC is always on the rocks when it comes to the movies and of course the rumors and stuff. So sometimes DC needs wins uh, here and there. So will Shazam do it? Well, you're going to have to wait and find out. And of course, um, if you are a new listener, what we'll typically do is we'll go over some you know movie trailers and talk about them, uh, commentate on them. Uh, and by that, I mean primarily me. Uh, because Joel has decided not to uh, um, indulge his eyeballs uh, with movie trailers this year. And then, of course, uh, movie news, uh, flagship by uh, Joel over there. And then, of course, the review. Uh, if you're a returning listener, welcome back. Um, before I throw it over to the other co-host, if you guys could please uh, like this episode, comment, share it around, and let people know this is the definitive movie podcast online that you love listening to on your, your way to work, your way home. Uh, from work, uh, going to the gym, going wherever. We appreciate you listening every week. Speaking of the co-host, Joseph, Joel Copling, sir, how are we doing this week? Uh, it, it was CinemaCon, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the week, so a lot of kind of news dropped, a lot of panels happened with studios, and some trailers were shown, and you know, I'll be talking about one of them in the lineup, and you hear about all the, the these titles and uh, casting and all this stuff. It's, it's just been a crazy week. But uh, other than that, you know, what's uh, what's been going on in Joel's world? Well, we're we're definitely talking about some of that next week, some of that this week. You know, got a lot of stuff to catch up on from the two weeks we took off. Um, other than that, this week's not been super eventful. My dad's out with a cold. I'm just kind of watching stuff. Boy Meets World. Uh, on Hulu because we got Hulu, so that's pretty cool. Um, I know you did the big marathon last time, um, or at, at some point um, in the last year or so, and um, I'm doing that now because I love Boy Meets World. It's it's uh, it's a trip revisiting it all and remembering lines that I had forgotten and and all that. That was that that show was my childhood. So love that show. The, and this uh, is why you and I could never make fun of people. That want to watch shows uh, for their nostalgia's sake because mm-hmm. that was our childhood, like you said. So it's like, yeah, if we want to go and revisit, it's basically because we um, we want to feel that uh, that warm comfort of youth again. <laughs> and it's a good show, yeah, so I you mean, know it makes uh, from, it makes it worth it. From the time when I was like aware of TV, which probably around, I mean, I guess I was aware of TV before this, but aware. And able to follow TV from when I was about four onward. Uh, this show was on for seven years because, yeah, I was born in '89. It started in '93, so and it ended in 2000. And you know, it was right around the time when 
I would have been able to enjoy something like this. It was in the TGIF, or was it Thursday at that point? I can't remember. But, um, you know, with these other shows like uh, Step by Step and um, and I'm forgetting others, but you know, there there were a bunch of shows in that in that time period, and um, yeah, it's just it's a great time, and I I just I love that show. It's great cast, great real laughs, genuine you know, genuinely heartfelt at times. And Corey and Topanga, uh, they're, they're a TV couple on the level of, you know, what Jim and Pam kind of took over from them later on. Now you say that, office. and I agree with you, Joel, but make no mistake, the best relationship on that show and one of the best relationships, or I guess displays of friendship in any show is Sean and Corey. Like that is oh, like, for sure. that yeah, is yeah. like one of the most pinnacle in, friendships in, terms in all of, of television. In terms of best friendships, yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty far up there. Um, that might be at the top, maybe, maybe so. And in terms of just romantic relationships, like absolutely, yeah, Corey and Topanga, the ups and downs they have, the breakups feel, you know, genuinely like not like they were trying to further drama. Um, the show was was kind of groundbreaking because of the fact that it was about the entire experience of Corey's growing up from, you know, middle school to, through to, um, to, to college and parts of college. And so, um, so it was special because of the fact that they weren't just, they did, it wasn't just about the friendship between Sean and Corey. It wasn't just about, Corey and Topanga's relationship, you know, it was also about his relationship with his parents and his siblings, you know, Eric and, and Morgan and, um, and, and again, his parents and it just, and Mr. Feeney and, you know, with school and responsibilities, it was, it was a well-rounded show and, uh, and it's just, it's great seeing it again. You know, I had a couple of the seasons on DVD. I think I sold them at some point. And, um, so I just haven't had that for a while and it's been nice because again parents signed up for hulu because they figured that the live version of that uh the tv there was better than direct tv so they wanted something else and and it just so happens it has a lot it has a lot of programming on it too so i think that what i'm going to do is right now like do boy meets world and then the other show oh and i just remembered it was uh, home improvement which was another one that i was a big fan of and even though i'm not a fan of tim allen anymore as a person Certainly, it's still funny, and uh, probably going to watch that one next uh, after I do Boy World. So, yeah, it's it's pretty cool, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of older sitcoms on there, and I and I like it. So, um, in any case, uh, yeah, uh, get into the trailers for the week, sir. Well, uh, how about, or how about your week? How I about mean, your week? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for glossing over that one. Uh, <laughs> no, nah, to be honest with you, it was a very um, it was a very bland week. Uh, didn't really do much. You know, watched uh, Shazam last night. Was supposed to see the Best of Enemies on Wednesday, but wasn't feeling too good. As you guys know, I have Crohn's, a, a wonderful medical condition that I just love when it controls my life. It's just uh, the best thing possible. Um, yeah, and so uh, yeah, it was a pretty bland week. Other than that, I finished up some of my shows. Uh, this is Us had season three finale on Tuesday. Um, uh, currently, my girlfriend and I are watching the Act. Uh, like I told you guys last week. And, of course, uh, Barry Season 2 uh, came out last Sunday on uh, March 31st. And so 
um, watch that. And uh, I, I, you know, Joel only saw that one episode when he came for um, for Diff last year, which is funny because now it's going to be playing through Diff this year. Um, but it's uh, it's a really fun show with Bill Hader and uh, Henry Winkler. They won Emmys for that show, so it's a, a really great. I would say it's more of a dramedy, uh, definitely more drama oriented, but there's definitely like a, a comedy bite to it that, that is really great because Bill Hader plays an assassin, right? And he's you know joining this theater group and he wants to act at the same time, so he's balancing both worlds. And you know, since he was in the military, he's kind of got like this very stern type of attitude. He's very straightforward, um, but that plays well to the the kind of dry wit that Bill Hader has naturally. And then also with the kind of PTSD that he's suffering from as a character. So it actually works on both fronts, but it's a really great show. So if you guys have not checked out Barry on HBO, uh, check it out. Um, and then of course, uh, we're just ramping up for game of Thrones. Cause I know I, I'm finally caught up to it. If you guys are, were curious, uh, we finished it a couple months ago, but I know, uh, I know she's excited. And of course, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's gonna be a crazy six weeks. But to go on to the Boy Meets World thing, real quick, uh, I have a sad realization for you guys, and I have a funny story about that show. The sad realization of that show is that the older I get, the more I'm becoming Eric, and it scares me because <laughs> when you watch Eric on that show as a kid, you know he's kind of like a goofball. He's not really he doesn't really have his life in order, and he kind of took school for granted. He didn't really have his life in order and you know his parents always kind of like not yell at him but like i'm super disappointed in you type of mentality for the most part even though they do love him and i'm starting to feel that the older i get because you know the more in debt that i get and you know i still can't find like a new job and stuff it's just it's just crazy to know that uh, i i feel like a failure i feel like an eric sometimes um, so th- there's your depressing moment of the show. Now the fun story, uh, Joel, I don't know how you were as a kid, but, uh, anytime when there was a, a sexy scene, if you will, in any television or movies, um, and you knew it was coming up, but your parents did not know. Um, I, I don't know if you did this, but I left the room and I would peek behind like the wall just to see like how my parents re- would react to it. Right. So I did the same thing when I watched Titanic in front of my parents for the first time. I left the other room because I already saw the movie. And then, like I peeked behind. I, I wanted to wait until the, the nude painting was done, <laughs> the scene. And then uh, I went and sat back down. For the Boy Meets World, it's very brief. And to be quite honest with you, I was, I'm was i surprised even to this day that Disney allowed some of the um, stuff in that show to air on that channel. Because it was a little um, PG, almost borderline PG-13 type of um themes going on through that show which is great you know um to have more of an adult show on there but there's one scene uh when Topanga and Corey get married and they're on their honeymoon and uh they get in bed and they start doing some stuff and you know they don't actually do it but you know she gets under bed and she takes her clothes off and I remember it cuts back to her she says like some line or whatever I already saw the episode like when I came home from school or whatever and, of course, you know, Disney Channel did the reruns and whatnot. I, the episode came on. My dad was behind me, and I was like, nah, I, I'm not going to do this right now. So I, I literally just, like, stood up. I was like, eh, I got to go to the bathroom. I, like, I went, you know, down the hallway. I peeked behind the wall, and I waited for the scene to be over with. And luckily, nothing happened. I'm just paranoid to be paranoid. But um, I, I just thought that was funny. Anytime when there was, like a, like, a sexy scene that happened in movies or TV, I would immediately, like, awkwardly not discuss it. 
I would get up from the room, walk out, and peek behind the wall just to make sure parents were okay, make sure the scene was gone, and then I would come back in. So um, fun <laughs> stuff. Uh, so, yeah, that was my Boy Meets World story. But, Joel, I'm glad you're on that marathon because once you get to the end, I, even as a uh, – I watched it when I was – rewatched it when I was 28 – I still bawled. I still bawled like a baby on the last episode, or, or like when hmm. just, not the very last episode, but like the last like three or four, like leading up to everyone's like departures and stuff. It's just <sighs> hits you in the feels. All right, so as Joel uh, alluded to, uh, the trailers, uh, you know, there was a couple like smaller ones that dropped this week, a couple bigger ones that dropped this week, and yes, I will talk about the uh, the Joker trailer, but that will be the last one. Um, to ramp up into it because that was literally one of the last ones that dropped this week. The first one that dropped this week that I knew about because Joel is a fan of this filmmaker. Uh, I am sad to report that I've only seen, I think, one of his like more recent movies. Um, I'm sad because I know that you know Joel has seen uh, the majority, if not all, of his filmography, but it is uh, Jim Jarmusch. Is that how you pronounce oh, it? No, I'm I'm not I'm not a Jarmusch fan. I I oh. I've only seen um, Only Lovers Left Alive. Oh, I think I think I own another one, but I haven't watched. I thought it you said you saw hours. Patterson. No, no, I'm not. I'm not the one who saw Patterson. That must have been Brian then, because someone Maybe. within our circle saw it, and I'm just like, oh, okay, cool. Unless it's Jackson, unless it's Jackson too. It might have been Jackson. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, so you know, he he made. A lot of films uh, that involve Bill Murray or Tilda Swinton, uh, and of course, um, um, uh, excuse me, Adam Driver. So he's basically like taking all of his past people and throwing them into one movie. And the new movie that's going to come out from Focus Features in June is The Dead Don't Die. Now, this one is about a peaceful town uh, called Centerville, and it finds itself battling a zombie horde as it as the dead start rising from their graves. So basically a, you know, zombie uh, type of story that we've seen before, you know, uh, it's, it's usually a small town of some sort that is not in or around a big city. So that if something like this were to happen, they won't, they won't be able to call for help and they got to just fend for themselves and they'll most likely all get eaten or turned. And so, you know, the zombies, you know, pop up and do their thing, got to chop off their head, all, all that. But what makes this unique and special is the cast and the tone. So the tone kind of reminds me of Shaun of the Dead. It's got like that tongue, tongue-in-cheek type of humor. Uh, it's very self-aware at what's going on. Um, it's violent as all hell, which, you know, that's what Shaun of the Dead was. So it kind of had the best of both worlds. And, of course, the cast. So get this. We have Bill Murray, Tilda Swinton, Steve Buscemi, Caleb Landry Jones, Iggy Pop, uh, RZA, Selena Gomez, Tom Watts, Carol Dane, or... Carol King, excuse me, Sarah Driver, uh, Rosie Perez, Danny Glover, uh, Chloe Sevigny, and uh, Adam Driver. That's insane uh, of a cast. So basically, like I said, everyone that he's worked with into this one. But I'm loving the tone. I'm digging the look. It looks like uh, um, it has like the the flavor and like the cinematography of like a B movie from like the 50s and 60s. But then like with the Shaun of the Dead type of humor. And I'm all about that. I love Shaun of the Dead. I love zombie movies. I love this cast. I mean, it literally could be Yui Bull behind the camera and I would still watch it. Just because of like every other piece involved. So I, I, I love this trailer. I cannot wait for it. And it's one of those things to where, <clears throat> you know, 
uh, it's going to be competing with a lot of big blockbusters in that month. And so for it to strike through as technically an independent kind of smaller film is pretty great. And I really hope it finds this kind of cult audience and, you know, Joel and I, well, I, I hope Joel would see it, but you know, uh, you know, people like us will definitely support it, and I hope you guys do too. Um, cause I know. Oh, for- I definitely, I definitely will. I mean, I'm, I'm, haven't seen the trailer, but I've, I'm sold on the cast alone. Right. Only Lovers Left Alive was interesting. Again, I, I'm not, I'm not real familiar with him. Um, I, I know that he is a very, very much a, a kind of an acquired taste director. You have to be on board with the first few that you see. Um, I'm not entirely sure that Only Lovers Left Alive was fully successful. I, 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 there's a lot about that movie that frustrates me, but uh, Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston as vampires is really interesting. And um, it certainly looked great. He uses, I think, at least on that movie, the cinematographer for, um, oh gosh, what was it? Um, I think a couple of Luca Guadagnino's first first two movies or something like that. And... Um, is certainly interesting. I, again, I don't know if it fully succeeded at what what it wanted to do, um, but again, this of course this movie has nothing to do with that one. It's got a it's got a deeper cast, um, and, and yeah, I mean, I like zombie comedies when they're done well. So right, hof- hopefully this one is. Hopefully, hopefully it uh, hopefully it delivers, and, well, I, and I'm excited that, for it. That's the thing with zombie comedies is that they're either going to be pretty good. Or really bad. There's honestly no middle ground. I, I don't think anyone has ever walked out of a zombie comedy or even a zombie movie just going, hey, that was fine. Like, it just, that's the type of, like, genre and, like, the the com- combination of two genres that you just don't have that reaction. You have, like, strong, visceral reactions because it's going to be loaded with gore and loaded with yeah, uh, humor. Yeah, pretty much stuff. either. Yeah. Either the filmmakers are going to use the fact that zombies are useless to their advantage and because zombies are slow shuffling mindless and don't really pose much of a threat unless they bite you. And and since they're slow and shuffling, there's not much of, unless it's like walking dead or something, there's not much of a threat there. You can just shoot them and, and be, be through with it. Now, of course, Shaun of the dead did a little bit of a different thing there, but, um, that's probably the best zombie comedy, at least modern day. Uh, I can't think of many like before that, but um, stuff like Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland's great. You know, it, this this should fit in nicely with with something like those two. Uh, it's probably going to be a little more, a little subtler, a little less, a little less obviously broad than Zombieland was. Um, G- people forget how, yeah, yeah. Given the filmmaker, and and people kind of forget how dry Shaun of the Dead was. Right. Um, in terms of its comedy, it's very British, extremely British, where Zombieland wasn't. So this is probably going to be closer to Shaun of the Dead, especially with Jarmusch behind it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I can't wait. I, I, I do love the material when it's done well, and I, and I think that Jarmusch is the kind of filmmaker with, the, with enough panache that he should be able to do it. And uh, so, yeah, anyway. Well, I'm, it's like, I'm obviously even like with talking that, about a movie I've seen a tra- trailer for, but. right? But it's like even with that cast, even if it was, even if it was mediocre, I just feel like everyone in this trailer is giving like a hundred and ten percent toward like they would just elevate it right into like the the category of good just on them yeah, alone. Yeah. So yeah. who knows? Absolutely. But um, it's definitely a trailer that caught me off guard. I'm excited to see it. A trailer I'm not excited for, and I realize this is gonna be geared towards more families but uh 
uh, and I'll explain why, but I'm looking more forward to another movie that this guy has coming out rather than this one. But this one's called uh, My Spy, and this one stars Dave Bautista. And uh, he plays a CIA operative, and he finds himself at the mercy of a precocious nine-year-old having been sent undercover to surveil her family. Sure, um, it, it kind of reminds me of like the um, the good old days. I mean, I'm I'm sure Joel just wants to relive those days over and over again because he tells me all the time in secret of when uh, you'd have like Vin Diesel or like Dwayne Johnson do the pacifier or the tooth fairy. I know he's longing for those days to have like big muscular men do like um, kitty family films, and um, you know uh, I think tooth fairy was on Joel's top ten that year, so I know that yeah. he's he's yearning worst. for it. I actually, didn't see it. But- whatever <laughs> uh, well i'm sure if you want to lie to the people um so i saw the spine i saw the spinex door which was the <laughs> okay, jackie definitely... chan one from the week before the the tooth fairy came out I think, that but... that definitely counts within this category this, this one is bad to be, honest, to be honest with you it's not it's not like te- like fully in the vein of those movies but it kind of has like somewhat of a flavor of those movies i'm just not feeling it um some of the jokes made me kind of smirk a little bit. And I know Dave, Dave Bautista has a really great uh, comedic timing. Uh, he's really uh, sharp when it comes to his kind of improv, as we have seen from the behind the scenes of uh, Infinity War. The Russos have uh, said numerous times that Dave Bautista um, would deliver a lot of lines on his own. A lot of them made it into the movie, and a lot of them are pretty funny. So I, I know the guy's talented in comedy i'm just not buying this one um the trailer to me it just felt just like stuff we've seen before and yeah that could I mean, be... it's, it's kindergarten cop it's right it's, it, it just this kind of thing and and honestly i don't like this this subgenre this thing where they get these really serious actors to parent be kids. sort of yeah kind of parent figures to small children it's really hokey and it and I don't think that I've ever seen a movie that's able to do it. Not even Kindergarten Cop. I don't like it. And, um, you know, something like Jingle All the Way even has that kind of vibe to it. Uh, another Schwarzenegger movie uh, with Jake Lloyd uh, is in that one. Um, not a fan of that one <laughs> either. Oh, the Pacifier I, I was, was it? A, oh, okay. Well, that's fine. I, I, I'm, I was not a fan even as a kid. I, I just, I, you don't want your some, Turbo Man? You don't want your Turbo Man No. Well, geez, I did Joel, like the no fact fun. that that Sinbad was in that movie, but um, <laughs> as, a, as a postal worker, it's the best. As a postal worker, um, but yeah, and then the pacifier was an embarrassment to cinema. But um, that that movie, I can't believe that exists. Honestly, that was probably the worst of those. Um, and then the Spy Next Door was. Bad. I don't. I don't like these movies. This is probably not one I'll see. I mean, if I were to see it, it's because Bautista's in it and he's fun. Um, but I can't imagine. I can't imagine actually watching this. Well, I mean, I, well, the other movie I was going to mention because CinemaCon was this week, and like I said, a lot of information dropped. But one of the panels, um, I forgot what studio it was. I believe it was Universal, and that studio um, premiered a. I, I believe it was either a trailer or a clip to Stuber, the one where Batista is in with. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. where he plays an Uber driver and I think he gets into like the wrong Uber and like he has to like do some stuff. And I, I heard the clip or the trailer that they showed people were 
his like laughing at it hysterically, like loud. So, you know, that's the, well, I'll tell you why it's because there's a really good director behind that. Which, um, which director? And it's Michael Douse who made, um, what if with, mm. uh, Daniel Radcliffe and Adam driver, really good movie. That's the one that I was in when Roger Ebert died and I walked out and found out, um, or no, Robin Williams, Robin Williams. That's uh, when Robin Williams died. Anyway, um, I came out of that one, but it's really good. Um, and then also a really underrated movie. I don't know if you like this one. I don't think we've ever talked about it. But Take Me Home Tonight with uh, Topher Grace and Anna Ferris. Did you ever see that? Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the first movies I watched when I got to Dallas for school. I went to a dollar theater to see it, and it actually fit the movie because the dollar theater, I'm not going to lie, some of them are pretty crappy. And so, you know, <laughs> it's, it's level seating. And it, it smells in there all the time. It has like this uh, kind of old school vibe to it, which actually worked for the movie. So I actually really enjoyed my experience. Yeah, yeah. I love that movie. Not a lot of people do. It was one that was delayed like four years before it came out. and um, But it was it was a lot of fun. Chris Pratt's in that. Uh, that was back when I think he was first dating Anna Ferris. I think that's where they met, actually. I think they met on that movie. That's what happened. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and of course, by the time it came out, they were – four years or something in, in their relationship. Right. But, uh, but yeah, really good movie. And now he's come back with this. I think it's his first movie that he's directed since what if I think, um, and I know he directed the first Dune as well. The, the hockey comedy. I haven't seen that, but I, I like Dune. Too. Yeah. I've heard it's good. And so I'm, I'm excited for Stuber. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, Stuber I'm really sounds amazing. My spy does not. So <laughs> please put that uh, back to bed. All right. So the third trailer is uh, Domino, this is the long-awaited mm. film from Brian De Palma, so Joel knows where I'm going with this. Yeah. Um, and so this one is about a Copenhagen police officer who seeks justice for his partner's murder by a mysterious man. And so this one is really cool, because I, I know why they dropped this uh, trailer, because it stars two Game of Thrones people. Um, and if you thought that was a coincidence, uh, it, it's not. It, this was totally planned. Um, the premiere... For episode one of the last season of Game of Thrones was on Wednesday. I believe this dropped on Wednesday. So, hey, I'm no marketing person, Joel, but I'm just saying. So, um, the two Game of Thrones people that are in this are uh, Karis Von Houten. She plays the uh, the witch in Game of Thrones. I, I don't know names. I'm going to be honest with you. I just I know Car- they... Karis Von Houten. She was in um, Black Book. A uh, movie I really love. Um, I think she also is that her? No, no. Yeah, uh, she's in Black Book, a movie from uh, uh, Paul Verhoeven a, a while ago that I that I caught up to. Real twisted movie. She's great in it. I think that's pretty much the only thing I know her from. But um, yeah, she she's the one yeah. in Game of Thrones to where uh, if I watch the show in front of my girlfriend's dad, he always goes, uh, "Oh, she's gonna get naked." Cause she is, she's always the one that like strips down and like, she's the witch. She performs all the rituals and stuff. So like, you know, that like HBO is going to use her for the nudity. And of course you have uh, definitely in black book. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Right. So, um, that, that's wonderful. I'm glad she's comfortable with her body. Um, and then of course, um, Oh man, what's, Oh, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, uh, hold on. I'm going to stall myself because I'm going to click on it. Jamie Lannister. There you go from Game of Thrones. Uh, you have Nikolaj Oh, yeah, Nikolaj yeah. yeah. And so uh, they are the two Game of Thrones people in it, but the two main people that are in it are uh, Nikolai and uh, Guy Pierce. 
And so this one is directed by Brian De Palma. It is a revenge tale. Um, stuff that we've seen before, but I'm excited to see De Palma behind the camera again. It looks um, like it's got some creativeness and uh, some artistic value to like, you know, the action sequences that I did see in the trailer. But overall, it does kind of look like a generic um, revenge story, very direct to DVD, Bruce Willisy type of stuff. Uh, I'm hope I'm wrong, but uh, that's what it kind of comes across as, and the poster kind of looks like that. So who knows? I'm, but- I'm a I'm a huge De Palma fan. There's there's a huge there's a few uh, blind spots I have. I've never seen Body Double. And I've never seen Carlito's Way, even though I've seen uh, Scarface. But um, but I love De Palma. I love even his stuff that people don't like. Uh, but, Snake but, but Eyes Joel, is here, great. Here's, here's the problem though. I, I'm a fan of De Palma too, but when you have a film. That was originally shown at two and a half hours. It's coming out as an hour and a half. Oh, no, that kind of worries me a bit. So that's kind of the whole like hoopla behind this movie is that it originally screened two and a half hours. De Palma made a a revenge epic. He threw it out there, and I think the financiers were like, "Nah, cut it down," and they cut it by over an hour. Man, so. That's, sorry. Yeah, that's not good. So I don't know what that means, if that made it like worse or maybe even better. I have no clue. But chopping an hour off is pretty significant. Like five, ten minutes, okay, that's like a whatever situation. But an hour kind of makes me worry a little bit. So um, I don't know if I'll ever get to see this movie, to be honest with you. But uh, if I ever get sent a screener, you know, I'm not going to say no. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things to where it looks very – TV Bruce Willisy direct to Walmart DVD type of situation. Um, I respect the the actors involved. I respect the filmmaker involved. Um, just not really kind of grasping to me or you know speaking to me on uh, any type of level. But you know it is what it is. Now the trailer that everyone probably on here is wondering what is going on with this Joker trailer. Now unfortunately. Joel uh, will not be talking about it because he didn't see it. Yeah. Now, if it was on his top five anticipated for the year, he would have watched it. So I have to carry this movie on my back, and I have to give a huge disclaimer. A lot of people do not like Todd Phillips. That's fine, I guess. Uh, I I hear through the grapevine. He's almost kind of like a Brett Ratner in terms of personality. Okay. Um but did he ever, like, you know, uh, harass people uh, in any way, shape, or form? I don't think so. I'm hoping not. So, personality aside, I like I like his movies. Um, I'm one of the few people that actually like the whole Hangover trilogy. I like War Dogs quite a bit. I like uh, Road Trip. Uh, Due Date is probably the weakest one for me, to be honest with you. Uh, I'd rather watch Hangover 2 over that movie. I just, I really didn't care for that one whatsoever. But I, I, for the most part, like Todd Phillips' movies. So when Joel and I were discussing. And I liked Starsky and Hutch. Oh, God. Uh, I forgot he even did that one. Um, I saw that in theaters <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I just he, like, I just like using that line because it's the most unexpected that people don't like. Oh, they don't associate him with that. I, um, I think uh, that was my, um, uh, the the movie where I was just like I don't think Todd Phillips should do PG thirteen anymore. <laughs> it's just it's not in his wheelhouse. Uh, 
you know, because with the Arbor, you you can kind of let your freak flag fly, so to speak. So with the Joker movie, you know, we were excited. You know, uh, it, it's it's going to be you know an offshoot from this universe. Todd Phillips involved. That's weird. Uh, Martin Scorsese's EP on it. That's weird. It's like there's so many weird ingredients involved, including Joaquin Phoenix. Like I don't know if you guys know this, but Joaquin Phoenix is really hard to book on any type of blockbuster movie. It is really, really hard to do that. Um, for the most part, he denies all that, and he goes straight to indie roles. That's totally fine. That's his prerogative, but he he primarily does not do blockbusters anymore. Uh, he has done a few. And- I've heard this. I've heard this weird rumor, and maybe maybe it's an, again, it's a rumor. Maybe it's completely unjustified, but apparently he laughed in their faces when they went to him to play the villain in Doctor Strange or something and because he didn't want to be part of Marvel because he hates Marvel like uh, you know the the MCU the the system right i mean i i don't know how much you know <laughs> i mean how believable given, that given is. how uh, how method and insane walking uh his acting is like that doesn't surprise me yeah um, i just feel like it would probably be a waste of his time like i i wouldn't expect daniel day lewis ever to play in, in, in right in so one of those you know. well so when you hear about joaquin phoenix you're just like what how they how they get him like I, I know that joaquin isn't really hurting for money but it's just like unless they like dumped a whole bunch of money to where it satisfies him or he's getting something out of it i just don't see how they convinced him to do this even if it is a villain role and it's primarily focused on him. It's just like, it's fascinating. I wonder how that meeting went. Cause you know, Todd Phillips to me, even though I like his movies, it doesn't really seem like he's a good negotiator in a room. I, I don't know. He just never seems like uh, the type of guy to where if he walked in, sat down, was like, Hey, Joaquin, you want to play, uh, you want to play Arthur, uh, 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 oh, I forgot. I forgot his name. Um, but, uh, you want to play a uh, Joker in, uh, your own movie. I'm sure you probably laughed in his face. So I'm just, I, I want to know how that meeting went down. But yeah. now that we actually have footage that we can see and how it is presented, what the tone is like, just everything. First show dropped. I got to tell you, I, I, you know, I'm not going to make bold predictions like this in April, but if this movie is like, is any good as this trailer is, we could be looking at a situation where Joaquin could get nominated type of deal if he uh, uh, is in a good movie. Because the thing is with Joaquin, he always gives 110%. Uh, even like even with people I know that hated the master, they always tell me that Joaquin Phoenix, he just he goes for it. He delivers at full throttle. He never has a weak scene ever. Like, that's how committed this guy is. And so, I've always been a fan of him. He's always been one of my favorites, even if he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs upstairs. I've always uh, respected him as a performer, and he's on the same level to me as, like, a Daniel Day-Lewis and, like, Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, Jake Gyllenhaal. Like, like the, the type of actors that they're just so committed to their work that it kind of just astounds me that um, they're acting type of deal and they take it this far. But with the Joker, you know, the trailer kind of sets up, you know, he's this guy who is just trying to make it in society. He, he lives with his mom and he gets bullied and, you know, he starts, uh, starts going a little crazy. And so he starts 
taking the identity of one of his uh, jobs, which was a clown, and he turns it into a kind of menace mask, if you will, and goes out and commits anarchy. I, I, I love the whole look of this trailer. I love Joaquin in this role. We got to see a little bit of variation in terms of how his character will be. We get to see the kind of playfulness that he has with his mom. We get to see the psychotic breakdowns uh, towards the end of the trailer. We get to see him vulnerable and scared when he's being bullied. We get to see kind of like a mini gamut of his performance and uh, a little bit of insight into what he might bring. And I, I'm really excited. Like this looks, it looks phenomenal. And usually with Todd Phillips movies, even if you hate them, totally understandable. I get it. You know what's not terrible in his movies, and this is even with Due Date? His movies are all shot well. Like, they all have a crisp, clean look to them with the cinematography, and this is no different. It has, like, that crispness to it. Like, it, it's it's very beautiful and um, very saturated with colors. The city is alive. Smoke is coming out of sewers. You know, it's very lively on the streets. It, it The city is a very, like... Um, it's a very breathable part of this movie and it's very palpable and it just provides this wonderful, almost like comic book-esque atmosphere around the character and I just, I, I loved it. I love the look. I love his performance. In this two minutes that we got, I can't wait to see the whole whole shebang. Like that just gets me excited. But yeah, I'm digging it. I know it's just a teaser. We didn't really get much. Um, and like I said, to be honest with you, what I just described to you is kind of what I gathered um, in terms of the story, uh, they didn't really show much. It was just kind of like clips, and they uh, he just slowly got more and more deranged. Um, and then there was, uh, if you guys are wondering what kind of comic book references, honestly, nothing much. He, he goes to Arkham once in a shot, and that's it. Um, other than that, it's, it sounds like this is a movie that's going to be primarily separated from what we've seen so far and be its own standalone thing, which is what they said, which is great. I wanted to stand I can, around. I can, Im- I can imagine that Batman's going to factor into it somehow, but I doubt it's going to be the Batman that we see in other movies. I, I think it's going to be like this a, universe, like a Batman v Superman situation where, uh, when Ben Affleck is in his, um, his lair and he walks by and he sees the Robin suit and, and you know, Joker's riding. Yeah. His I feel like it's going to be something like yeah. that where someone's going to look at a suit a picture or something, it's not going to be an actual person because this is primarily yeah. a character study on this character. But I, I see your point. I think they probably will way have be- something way like before that. any sort of arch nemesis role. On right. It, all of that. Yeah. Like, and we'll get into the review when we get into it, but you know, Shazam was kind of the same way. We're like, there was just like, like a newspaper article or like a, an yeah. object or something. It wasn't like people were just like whizzing by the screen and like, how's it going? And they just whiz off. It's like none of that. Um, yeah, yeah, I love the trailer. Uh, definitely my favorite one of the week. And just real quick, um, before I let uh, uh, Joel talk about it or what he he is what he was going to say, um, uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about, you know, just real briefly, is that uh, I, I said this last week, uh, and I, I'm so glad I was right. Um, the tickets did go on sale for Avengers Endgame on Tuesday. And not a trailer, but a one-minute kind of clip dropped. I guess you would kind of call it like a one-minute trailer. It's basically just an announcement going, get your tickets, you you idiots. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, yes, Marvel, I am an idiot because I spent <clears throat> a 
over a hundred dollars on tickets. Don't tell anyone. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, you know, that drop tickets were announced. There was a couple new things in the trailer, but mo- for the most part, it, it, they're keeping it very close to the vest. Um, definitely. I think if, uh, they wanted to put this in the record books for the most expensive movie project in history that didn't have that much marketing or any clue to what was going on in the movie, this would probably win it. Um, cause they, they've invested over a billion dollars in infinity war and Endgame, and their marketing has been very, very minimal, which is amazing. So that's really great. Yeah, I have to, I have to wonder what the numbers are on that because I feel like they've, they spent more on Captain Marvel in marketing than and and maybe even the past few than they have on on Avengers Endgame. And I have to wonder if they oh, were that, just that being is, cost efficient. Yeah, that is one hundred percent true. And, and I think yeah, it's also I, because Captain Marvel's new. You kind of have to introduce her and ease her into yeah, the public. You don't Avengers need to. Is, you don't yeah. even. You don't even need to sell Avengers Endgame. The people no, who don't. saw Infinity War and liked it and are interested in continuing, which I can imagine are most of them are going to just see it and they don't need a trailer. Um, right. You know, that's, you know, I watched this as well. I, I think that just cause it's Avengers Endgame, and I just am obsessed with the marketing of this. But um, I think that the only thing that I, that, that I felt was genuinely part of the movie in order of how we see it was the last few seconds. And I'm not going to give it away, but there's, but okay, well I'll give this small bit away, but Thanos makes a reappearance here in the in the marketing and he's speaking in voiceover and there are characters walking and i have a feeling that the voiceover belongs to the same scene as the characters walking in a way that all of the other stuff that's been edited together seems to be kind of intentionally misdirecting people i think that unlike everything else that little scene is genuinely in the movie as it is in a way, um, we are seeing characters walking toward another one, and we are hearing a character speaking. And I think that those things go together. But everything else, I I don't know what to make. And even if that is true, I have no idea what the context of that is or what it could be. And I'm I have like a quadrillion questions uh, exploding in my brain. It's gonna be. It's going to be something else, and I have a feeling it's going to be here before we know it because we've got a film festival that's probably going to go really quickly, and then suddenly it's going to be here. <laughs> so, yeah, well, it's I, great. I, we don't I, have to wait too long. Anymore. Well, I was thinking about this like today on the drive home. Everyone that's excited for this movie, you and I included, I just want you guys to know we are 20 days away from the first ever public showings. Enjoy this because once this comes... We watch the movie and the hype has died down after, you know, hopefully it's a great movie and it kind of ends this storyline. We probably will never get to experience this again with this franchise. Mm-hmm. Sure, they might do a whole like phase four, five, and six and then have another like in capper Avengers, but this is like the first initial one. And I don't think we're ever going to reach that point where we're going to feel that that swell of excitement and just like readiness to be emotionally vulnerable to this movie that might make us cry, angry, happy, whatever. Like it's going to be an experience. And I I just enjoy these 20 days folks, because once it gets here, it's going to go away. And we're going to look back on this 30 years from now, 40 years now. But like, do you remember when we saw infinity war and Endgame in theaters 
and it's going to be one of those ones we talk about for a while. So just enjoy it because uh, I know we're excited, but I-, I was thinking to myself like, hold on, hold back. I'm probably going to die here soon in like 30, 40 years on this earth. Let me enjoy stuff. Let me let me just kind of breathe a little bit and uh, enjoy this kind of ride that they're going to take us on. So, uh, yeah, super exciting uh, one-minute spot. And uh, you're right, we'll get here before we know it. But wh- what were you going to say about uh, the Joker trailer? Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I'm not a Todd Phillips fan. I think that – Oh, God bless re- you. Yeah, the reason is because I feel like with his comedies – the harder he goes into that R rating, the more unlikable his characters become. And to a degree that it just it just became a chore to sit through the hangover movies. I don't like those. You know, and it's probably because of them that I didn't see stuff like War Dogs and Due Date. I probably should see War Dogs because I've heard it's something different. But I guess the reason that I took to Starsky and Hutch is because he was softer. Um, it was a little more fun that way. Now I haven't seen Road Trip in old school, but that's because after having seen all the Hangover movies, I wasn't rearing to see his R-rated stuff uh, from earlier in his career. Now this is completely different, of course. This this Joker movie. It's not a comedy. Um, it's very much a 180 turn for him. Um, so of course I'm excited. I mean I'm I'm excited despite the fact that. I've only liked one of his previous movies, and it came out 15 years ago. Um, but yeah, and I saw it like 10 years ago <laughs> or something. But um, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm excited for it. It sounds great. I've not obviously I've not seen the trailer, but um, I've seen stills from it, and the the general kind of visual energy is very different from his previous movies. I disagree with you about the visual look of the Hangover movies. I thought they were grungy and and kind of gross uh personally but um but i'm certainly interested to see what he does with the new cinematographer and i think it's a new cinematographer and um so yeah i'm 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 certainly very intrigued by this and it's got the it's got interestingly enough the venom release date this year so i feel like it probably will make money um with that kind of release date and uh i, yeah. I think it's gonna crush yeah because yeah. the, the month previous it chapter two is going to crush. And I feel like it's going to be like a one hit, like punch just each month. Like something big is going to happen. And I feel like and then, and then 14 different things in November and then like 27 different things in December right. are going to crush. And <laughs> yeah. All righty. Um, well, I guess it's time to get into the week's news. I'm just going to kind of blow through a lot of this guys. Um, Cause so much happened from a couple weeks ago. Uh, the first thing is probably the best thing. And that is the fact that, of course, uh, James Gunn was reinstated as the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 director after the controversy surrounding his tweets. Um, and he has expressed appreciation to Disney and to his fans and everybody who kind of supported him um, by basically saying, you know, I've, I've learned from this and I'm willing to move on. I'm, um, you know, I'm humbled for this. So I'm really happy about this. I, of course, I felt like he shouldn't have been fired in the first place. He's going to move on directly to this after the Suicide Squad completion, uh, and he's shooting that later this year. So um, very excited for that. I can't wait to see what he's got going on for potentially new characters, or at least some of the characters will be new characters, I suspect. Um, And, uh, yeah, really excited. Uh, Are you pretty much in the same boat as me, Chase? Yeah, it, it it was very surprising. 
Like when when yeah. I first heard, about, I thought it was, I thought it was April Fools already. I was like, it's not April first. <laughs> What's going on? Um, no, it, it's awkward because right. I want to know how that that contract meeting went down because when they fired him, they terminated his contract. So what convinced him to come back for them to sit down with him and go, um, yeah, we'll offer you this much, um, and work like I would feel so ashamed. If I was an executive and I did that and I had to bring him back in to rehire him, I'd be like, this is really awkward. So I want to know how that went down because I'll guarantee you that he signed a stricter contract than he did previously. So, um, but other than that, um, yeah, great news all around. I'm glad that he's going to come back and kind of complete his trilogy. To quote Stanley Hudson from The Office, money. Uh, (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. So uh, the next bit of, of news is something that I'm not super familiar with. I've heard pretty good things about the original movie, but it's a cool new project for Blumhouse to take on. And it's the craft. It's a reboot of the craft. Um, and it's, uh, been on, I think that this has been in the works for a little bit. Um, and it's attracted a new director and that is Zoe Lister Jones. Who's also going to write it. Uh, Lister Jones was responsible for a movie that has a lot of fans, not me among them. Um, and that is band aid from a couple years ago. Brian is a huge fan, uh, fan of that one. Brian Sutfield, our, our good friend. Um, I'm not, I, I think that I, I thought it was quite overrated, but I'm interested to see what she does with a big budget. This was the one about uh, a Catholic schoolgirl who gets involved in a, um, in a coven of witches in her house, in her high school. Um, it, it's a pretty clever premise. I know that the movie is very popular with kind of cult movie crowds. Uh, it is, you know, literally called a cult classic. It's been, 23 years since it came out um should be interesting of course you got jason blum producing um and um red wagon entertainment's behind it so it'll be interesting uh and the original film's director andrew fleming is is going to be producing it as well uh so i'm interested i'm going to be interested to see how that turns out have you seen the craft chase no but what's really funny about is when i when I heard about this uh, this news, first of all, I was like, Blumhouse, that's a smart choice to take on this project. And second of all, I've actually never seen it. Um, that was one of those things where I went to the video store all the time. It was one of the covers I always saw. Never picked it up. <laughs> yeah. This will give me a good chance. I mean, we got a bunch of copies at work. This will, be, this will give me a good chance to see it again, or see it for the first time, I should say, um, to actually take that chance because, you know, again, pretty popular. All right, and now we got a bunch of casting news to talk about. Um, all right, the first one kind of has evolved over the past couple weeks. So originally, whenever I made these notes, they were for last week, and then I decided to go a different way, and now two other cast members have been added, and that is the Black Widow movie, uh, which is obviously going to star Scarlett Johansson, and it's now going to star potentially as the villain, Florence Pugh, um, straight off of fighting with my family great little uh great actress kind of breaking into her uh into her career i i really like that she is now going to take on something like this and then within the last week it also recruited other two other actors rachel vice and david harbour um directly off of hellboy which is an interesting move uh so i like to hear this uh very interesting to see who are they who they're going to play how this all kind of uh plays out Great little cast uh, starting out with. So uh, the next one is also Marvel, and it's also uh, changed since originally I talked about this, and it changed within the last four hours, actually. 
The Eternals is a movie that Chloe Zhao of the writer is going to direct. And this is def- this is going to be the first kind of team-up movie that hasn't had another movie yet um, in Phase 4. Um, and that is The Eternals. And it's going to star Angelina Jolie. That was the first person announced. Um, so this is going to be very interesting to see Jolie being directed after having seen some of her directorial efforts being directed one in another Disney movie because, of course, she was in Maleficent. She's got another Maleficent coming up this year. And then, um, you know, to be directed by somebody as as kind of singular in her vision as Chloe Zhao, especially because of the fact that it's a Marvel movie and, you know, you never know how, how much um, personality the directors will be allowed to have. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. And then within the past few hours, Kumail Nanjiani has been in talks to join the the Eternals. So that's a pairing, uh, Jolie and Nanjiani. I, I have, would never have thought that, especially in a Marvel movie. The least likely thing I could have ever thought of. So um, I'm not super familiar with the Eternals. I know kind of the basics about them. It'll be a fun thing to see, uh, see that all come together. So that's the next bit. All right, so this... This uh, third bit of casting news, very interesting because uh, it's actually more interesting because of the director, I think, than because of the cast movers. But it's pretty interesting all around. It's a new um, adaptation of Macbeth. It's going to star Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, um, which is a really interesting pairing of actors together and those actors with this particular material. And not to mention that it's going to be directed by Joel Cohen. Now, no, this is not the Joel Cohen, to pronounce uh, a name kind of phonetically or whatever, uh, C-O-H-E-N, that some people will kind of, um, there's two, there's basically like four people that you could probably confuse with each other if you don't, if you aren't careful in reading them. There's Joel Cohen, who is a, and I'm, and I'm just saying that literally, Joel, C-O-H-E-N who is a producer, sometimes uh, a writer of movies. He doesn't work very often. Then there's, of course, Eitan Cohen, not related to, to Joel Cohen, um, who is the writer of stuff like Traffic Thunder and Holmes and Watson. And then there are the Cohen brothers, Ethan and Joel. <laughs> so Joel Cohen of the Cohen brothers is going to be directing this alone. Um, and in fact, not only is he directing it alone, Ethan Cohen is not involved even as a producer, which is very strange. Now, for a long time, people don't realize this. It was because of a, uh, of a um, DGA rule. Joel Cohen was the only one credited for directing Cohen Brothers movies until The Lady Killers in 2004. And sometime between, I think, oh, also uh, maybe Intolerable Cruelty, but I think that between The Man Who Wasn't There and Intolerable Cruelty, some DGA rule... Uh, kind of changed and suddenly they had to be credited together of course they always actually directed their movies but because of that rule only Joel was um, was credited and now we're getting a movie that's only directed by Joel Cohen and that's really interesting to me and then it gets you know more interesting to know that it's Macbeth and then it gets more interesting to know that Macbeth is going to star Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, of all people. And uh, yeah, the, the whole thing is, is fascinating to me. Uh, the next one sounds pretty fun. It's a, um, it's a stripper saga 
that's what it's being called, an ex-stripper saga, um, based on a New York Magazine article that went viral um, to be directed by Lorraine Scafaria. It's called Hustlers, and it's going to star this collection of people. Um, get this. <laughs> All right. So it originally started with Jennifer Lopez. Then I think Kiki Palmer, Julia Stiles, and Mercedes Rule, of all people, joined the cast. And then you had Met Tally, who's been on Cats, and Tracy Lizette from Transparent. They joined. And then Constance Wu of um, uh, Crazy Rich Asians, she joined. And now the two latest stars are Lily Reinhardt from Riverdale and the most interesting one to me, Cardi B, um, is really interesting. And she's going to play, kind of fittingly enough, the best friend of the Jennifer Lopez character. So you got two kind of hip-hop pop stars kind of coming together to play really good friends. Um, I'm a big fan of Cardi B, not as a person so much, uh, but as a musician. I think she's really talented. And uh, this is a really kind of star-studded cast. I'm, I'm interested to see this all come together. But um, it's about a savvy group of former strip club employees who banded together to turn the tables on their Wall Street clients, which is a lot of fun. That's a, it's kind of a, 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 a stripper's 11. Ocean's, I don't know how to, how to turn that into an Ocean's 11 pun. But anyway, um, really excited to see that come together. The next one is Steven Spielberg's version of West Side Story. Um, I'm probably not the best person to talk about this because I've never seen West Side Story. Um, but it's going to be Spielberg's first musical. Of course, it's a remake of a musical. It's already set to star Ansel Elgort and Rachel, uh, Rachel Zegler. And then it's now added two other names, uh, Corey Stoll and Brian Darcy James, two uh, Spielberg veterans. So uh, super big fan of both of those actors. They're really talented. And it's also got Tony Kushner writing the screenplay. He wrote Lincoln and Munich uh, for Spielberg. So that's a really good, um, really solid writer. And then, uh, you know, he's back with Janusz Kaminski as the cinematographer. I mean, it's a new Spielberg movie. Come on. And the final one. Uh, no, not the final one. Sorry. The second to final one. Told y'all guys it was a lot of news. Um, of course, Christopher Nolan has a new movie coming out in 2020. We don't know the name of it yet. We don't know what it's about. We know that it's a romantic blockbuster of some sort uh there's being called a cross between inception and north by northwest and it has its first few stars so of course uh john david washington was the first person to join this cast um directly off of black klansman and monsters and men and i love him great new actor um really getting a start and i love that and then he was joined by robert pattinson um and that'll be pattinson's first pairing with uh with nolan and elizabeth debicki um I, I i can't wait to see this I, I just i just can't wait uh i know that pattinson's had a lot of really positive things to say about the screenplay as of recently he said it was unreal so i'm really happy about that because he's taken some great projects in recent years um Debicki's, you know right off widows and and i love seeing her in that can't wait to see her in something like this um another another movie with a great cast so big fan of that now i have a funny thing to point out about my last bit of casting news because it's sam mendez new movie 1917 it's actually going to be uh made for spielberg's amblin uh entertainment 
and it's a World War One film. But the funny thing that happened is, and I think it was possibly unintentional that they didn't point out that it was a reunion of these three actors, but the three actors that kind of were the main people added, the people that were like, oh, wow, those three were all in the same movie not long ago. And those people were Benedict Cumberbatch, Mark Strong, and Colin Firth, all of whom were in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy uh, back in 2011. Great spy movie, one of the best uh, of recent years. And it just so happens that those three were on a lot of the press releases. So, I But they didn't say Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy Reunion. They never mentioned that in the article. I have a feeling that it's because nobody remembered that all three of them were in there because that movie has a really deep cast. I think it's the only one to star thus far this uh, ever really to star both Benedict Cumberbatch and Tom Hardy. And of course they then immediately went on and played uh, Batman and Star Trek villains. And it also had uh, Colin Firth, Gary Oldman, John Hurt, Toby Jones, um, you know, obviously uh, Mark Strong, um, too many people to, to count, but really interesting that now Sam Mendes working on this World War One thriller um, and has kind of taken this cast, plus some other people who are kind of maybe lesser known uh, by their names uh, than these three. Um, it's still quite a bit of a uh, an ensemble, though, and I can't wait to see what's, what's going on there. So, yeah, really big fan of this, uh, of how this sounds. And uh, basically, I love all of these bits of casting news. Really interesting. So, Chase, wade through all of this, sir, and I'm sorry in advance. <laughs> okay, uh, so the Black Widow thing. Are you kidding me? We're gonna have, we're gonna have a uh, uh, Pew, Rachel Weisz, and uh, who was the third person that joined? Um, what was it? Oh, um, David Harbor. Incredible. Uh, this yeah. is, like I cannot believe. For a Black Widow solo film, uh, we are getting this um, type of stat cast. That makes me super excited. That also tells me that Black Widow might kick the bucket in Endgame, um, and this might be a prequel. Um, I don't know. Just uh, I'm just throwing it out there that that's probably the possibility. Um, How dare you reveal spoilers? Hey, hey, hey! Now I saw the entire movie last night. Uh, <laughs> And then Disney's going to flag this episode and come hunt me down with the FBI. Jeez, um, <laughs> they're going to be like, uh, oh, sh- wow. Uh, all right, so. Who showed him? <laughs> yeah, uh, I didn't do anything. Um, all right, so uh, the Eternals thing, that's really interesting casting because Angelina Jolie's already working with Disney with Melissa- Maleficent Films. Uh, Kumail hasn't really worked with Disney, I don't believe. So um, I think that'll be fascinating if he does join. Uh, he's a very... Uh, obviously he's a gifted comedic actor and a really great stand-up, but he's really great at uh, drama as well. Uh, if you want to look at the film The Big Sick or even um, other stuff that he's done with like Silicon Valley, he kind of um, goes back and forth a little bit on that one. And of course with The Twilight Zone, the first episode of that, I watched that and he's really great in that too. So he's got range and a lot of people tend to forget that. So um, him joining that would be great. And then Jolie, you know, uh, she she can do her thing. Um, the 
Oh, the um, the Macbeth thing. Of course, Francis McDormand's going to be in it. It's uh, it's Joel's wife. So I'm pretty sure, like, if he wants to make any movie, uh, not with his brother, he's going to be like, "Hey, uh, Francis, uh, could you uh, be in this?" And she's going to say yes. And I also think this is a great marketing tool because what was her last film? She just won the Oscar. So um, I, I think that makes perfect sense. And of course, with Denzel. I, I'm really excited about that because when I saw Fences in theaters, I was blown away by the uh, the kind of dialogue energy that uh, Viola Davis and Denzel had. And, of course, Fences is based on a play, and so it has that play and, structure. And Denzel has history with uh, Shakespeare, too. He did right. Much Ado About Nothing back in the 90s for Kenneth Branagh. Um, another movie with a stacked cast. And I have a feeling that this cast is going to be huge. We've just heard the first two, you know, uh, members right. of it's, it. It's the, um, it. It is one of the Coens. I'm pretty sure they yeah. have connections all over the, the town. So they're going to get uh, whoever and uh, uh, whatever. They're going to get uh, even objects. You know, they're going to get everyone. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I was just bringing up Fences because it was the most recent type of play oh, yeah. structural film that he, is, he has done. And he was phenomenal in that. Um, the Hustlers thing, sure. I mean, I don't know what you want me to say about that, especially with that story of Cardi B breaking last week. I I don't like her at all. I never really did. And then when you hear about the story about what she did to those uh, guys in the hotel room, it's like, uh, I'm good. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, if she ever just comes across to me in like a, a movie or just music, I'm just going to brush it past me now. Um, in terms of the actual story, of that you know movie ah, it's not for me um uh the west side story i'm kind of like with joel i'm musicals i am very sad to report is kind of a an embarrassing blind spot for me because i don't really watch that much of them and then the last time i was wowed by a musical was uh sweeney todd and that was 12 years ago so um yeah i'm very picky when it comes to musicals so yeah we'll see um so the uh, Christopher Nolan thing, I, I I love this. When you get the lead actor from Black Klansman, you get the lead actor from Good Time, and you get one of the best supporting performances last year in Widows, and you cram him into one movie, you're bound to have greatness. And, and, and I know um, Robert Pattinson said that he was blown away by the script, He's getting paid to do this movie, so let's take uh, that with a grain of salt. Well, like, yeah. Yes, he's he's there to promote it, but... But but he's doing the movie because he was right. probably blown away it, well, by the script. Well, I mean, <laughs> so. well, it, it's also fantastic because there are still people out there that uh, put put uh, Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart on this cross, and they still nail him to it for the Twilight films. I'm telling you guys right now that all these directors are not just working with Kristen and Robert because they were in the Twilight films. It's because they're talented. And so if Christopher Nolan can see that, then um, that should be the nail in the coffin right there. Because I'm, I'm so sick and tired of people still railing them against that franchise. Um, and, and the thing is, like Christopher Nolan, he, he, uh, he's done this before. When McConaughey won his Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club... Here we go. Hires him for Interstellar. Like he he knows talent when he sees it. I'll guarantee you that he's been following Robert since 
his post Twilight days, and it was either because he watched Good Time or something he did with Cronenberg or one of those films to where he was like, "Yeah, I need to get him in one I, of my projects." I honestly wouldn't be all that surprised if he didn't know that Robert Pattinson was in Twilight. Not that it would matter because he's done other th- other things right. since, but. He did not know who Harry Styles was when he cast him in Dunkirk. That's true. You know, he's he's come out as saying that he didn't know until halfway through shooting the movie that But that, he that was... just goes towards my point is that he just sees talent. He doesn't see yeah, past work. Exactly. He just knows exactly. that, hey, clearly, I, right. clearly Harry Styles came in and auditioned for essentially just like a, a kind of a just a soldier. It wasn't it wasn't any sort of starring role in any way. He, hey, he, he hold just hold on. He had more dialogue than I thought he did. So uh, I mean, you know what I mean, though. It wasn't right. he was he was basically kind of asked to bleed into the roles of the other two white uh, young white soldiers, and he looked a lot like him, and and all of that. And that was the point of those characters was right. that they looked a lot like each other, and and so they represented a lot of uh, a lot of soldiers in that area in that era in that uh, conflict, and well, man, clearly why, whenever he respect- did that, and he and he impressed. You know, uh, and and that's that. He wasn't cast on the basis of being in One Direction at one point, <laughs> right? And um, that's why I respect Nolan because he just he just sees yeah. it. Like he doesn't have yeah. to be like, oh, you're in One Direction. Well, obviously, I'm not going to work with you. If Harry yeah. <laughs> went to that room and he blew him away and was like, hey, you're gonna like Joel said, you're gonna blend in with the other thirty white hair, uh, uh, brown headed dudes. Then yeah, and you, and you plus, I mean, it's it it's also just telling us too. That Harry Styles didn't go in in order to sell himself on the basis of having been in One Direction, because clearly that would have gotten to Christopher Nolan if he hadn't even mentioned it to anybody before that point. Right. So I wouldn't be surprised if you know one or two people kind of heard about it, but the word never reached Christopher Nolan that he was casting a huge pop star. Um, and so clearly, at some point, it came out that you know, or, or it clicked with Nolan that he was a part of this, but. Also, clearly, Styles wasn't, you know, he wasn't trying to get in on the basis of his pop starness, and so yeah, it just makes you respect kind of both of them more because they went with they went for the the talent they had or the talent they saw, and um, yeah, it's it, he just you're absolutely right he he casts based on talent, and whether or not they kind of fit with each other, um, you know, whether they can fit into an ensemble, and 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 then there we go, and, right. um, and he, he bring like. I know Christopher Nolan's not an idiot. He probably brings all of his actors into the same room and they have to bounce off each other. So there was probably something with these three where he was like, yeah, this works. Boom. Let's go. And so, uh, yeah, I'm excited for that. I don't care. I don't even care what it's about. Nolan's one of those directors, just like with like a Tarantino, um, Scorsese, Spielberg to some degree. (laughs) Like, yeah, you just, um, you can rely on just their name to where like, Hey, I have a new movie come out. Oh man, I'm excited. Um, and so the uh, last bit of casting news, great. Uh, I don't know much about, you know, uh, this film project. I haven't really been following it, but, uh, from the way you were describing it and just these three, uh, gentlemen in general, um, it's a great, um, kind of mashup. And, you know, we're about to talk about Mark Strong here in a little bit. And he's, he's always just kind of, you know, been in movies and, you know, he's great in them. And then we just, we like kind of forget about him. And then like, he's just in something else. You're like, man, I just keep forgetting how great Mark Strong is. <laughs> so, um, cause you know, he was like so great in the Kingsman movies. And it's like, those kind of fell off to the wayside. I'm just like, man, where's Mark Strong been? And then he was in Shazam. I'm just like, oh yeah, Mark Strong's still great. <laughs> so, 
uh, but that, that's what's great about about him is that he doesn't rely on star power. He's just like I'm gonna be in whatever, and you can enjoy it if you want to. Um, so yeah, uh, overall great casting. My favorite. That's tough. I, I do like the Christopher Nolan um, trio there, but um, I'm kind of impressed. And it's not. This isn't anything new. They've been doing this with several other movies, but I'm impressed with uh, Marvel's casting of the Black Widow movie. Yeah, yeah. I think. Uh, hmm. And then the Macbeth yeah, one's pretty, really, pretty second second runner. I think there. I, I think I might be most excited for the Christopher Nolan movie. That's right. such a that's such an interesting pairing of three actors, and I and I just I can't wait to see what he does with them. All right, folks. Uh, let's get into our main review, um, our only review now. I keep saying main review as if there's going to be another one, but anyway, um, our review this week is for Shazam. Now, this is the new movie, kind of, in the DCEU. Uh, it comes from the director of of Lights Out and Annabelle Creation, total 180 from those movies. And in fact, you wouldn't even be able to tell from this one that it comes from a director with horror roots because it's not a horror movie. It is a cheerful and delightful superhero comedy family drama hybrid. Um, Asher Angel stars as Billy Batson, a young kid who uh, is about 14 or 15. He's bouncing from home to home in the foster system after having been separated from his mother at a, at a state fair when he was younger. And um, now he's made it to the doorstep of kind of a, of a group home almost, a pair of parents who have taken in several children, um, including one who becomes his best friend, Freddie, played by uh, Jack Dylan uh, Grazer from, uh, from It, Chapter 1. Um, one of the, the shining stars of that movie is now in this one. And uh, keeping time with this is his is uh, Billy's Great Destiny, which is to find his way somehow to a, uh, a wizard's realm. The wizard, played by Jaimin Honsu, uh, affords him the powers of Shazam, uh, who is a red and lightning bolt-clad superhero with super strength, super speed, and super endurance. Um, and he can also turn into Shazam just by saying his name. Uh, however, there is a villain in his midst, uh, a man by the name of Thad Savannah, played by Mark Strong. And um, uh, speaking of, by the way, I guess I should have said this, Shazam, the Shazam version of this character, is played wonderfully by Zachary Levi. And um, anyway, he does meet up with this villain, played by Mark Strong. We just talked about this guy. Um, who was also given this chance to take control of Shazam, but was rejected in his childhood. Um, all right, so that's all I'm going to say about the plot. It's surprisingly elaborate. I'm going to go ahead and give Chase the floor to give his thoughts on Shazam. Well, and just to comment on the plot a little bit, Joel's actually hiding a lot. There, there is yes. a lot of uh, kind of twists and turns that this movie takes and sets up for this uh, world and specific universe for the Shazam universe. And it gets me kind of excited when you kind of read into it because uh, it's really kind of wacky and kooky, but uh, I'm all for it. Um, so to kind of go back a little bit. My DC love uh, ever since you know Man of Steel has been all over the place. Uh, I actually love Man of Steel a lot. I love the extended cut of BVS. Uh, I like 90% of Wonder Woman. I hate Suicide Squad. I uh, thought Justice League was whatever. And then, of course, uh, with uh, Aquaman, I also thought it was just kind of 
whatever. It's got some interesting visuals and some interesting sequences, given the fact that James Wan's behind as director. But overall, DC's vision um, post Dark Knight Rises, because that's when it, after that movie is when it is uh, is when it fully kicked off. It's been kind of a hit and miss. With this one, you know, when you have, uh, once again, in James Wan's situation, you have a horror director coming to do this one uh, with uh, Sandberg, you know, who did Lights Out, like you said, in Annabelle Creation. I didn't really care for Lights Out, to be honest with you. Uh, creepy imagery, sure. Didn't really care for the story. Annabelle Creation, kind of enjoyed. So, he wasn't a really, uh, I actually, believe it or not, I actually saw his short film that he did to get the Lights Out job. That short was creepier than the entire movie, by the way. Um, I actually think that short is pretty And it didn't have the depressing and critical ending. I think that's what really left a sour taste in my mouth was the ending of Lights Out because it's not a good ending. But the ending to the short film is just kind of like, it's like a a terror punch where just like it, it happens, it lingers for like a second and then it cuts the credits and you're like, what did I just see? And then you're like, I'm like legitimately freaked out by that. So it was a really great short film. So going into this one now, as we've seen from Hollywood as its uh, usual trend, you know, studios getting smaller filmmakers to do these big tentpole projects. And to Sandberg's credit, he had the the Tim Miller effect where Tim Miller came in and directed the first Deadpool. And that was, um, I think, $40 million or $50 million. And it's a very cheap film. And when I was watching the set photos and, of course, the trailer and everything, uh, you know, it kind of has like that not cheap vibe, but it has something to more of the lines like they're not sinking $200 million into it. Yeah, I think I think it was an even hundred, right. which is, which which is pretty small. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty small compared to some of these other ones. Right. When you have Justice League that almost costs $300 million and you have this one that costs a third of that, it makes a huge <laughs> difference visually, but... It actually works in its favor because this film kind of presents itself, as Joel says, as like a, a lighter type of movie than what, we, what we're used to the DC movies. So I was excited for it because, you know, it's uh, the comic book genre. Um, I, I criticize it harsh, harsher than any other genre, uh, probably that in horror. And I respect it so much to where, like, you know, I, I go in, I want, I want to love Every single thing that happens within this genre. I will call out their mistakes when they are made. And, you know, I'll praise what needs to be praised. Now, when Joel saw this movie two weeks ago, um, you know, he, he immediately told me that he, he loved it. And so I was just like, oh, okay, so I, I'm in for a treat. I was even more excited when you sent me Mark's review and Mark gave it a four star. And Mark's highest grade that he gives is a four star. So the fact that he gave it one of those grades got me even more excited. And I am proud to announce that I love this movie. This is one of those situations where it just like uh, the kid who would be king earlier this year. Now, two completely different movies for sure. But Shazam reminded me in that movie in a way where... This was like a family film where it's got those upbeat, heartfelt, funny, very peppery, kind of pippy type of um, performances and scenes. But it also is not scared to throw in fear 
and dread, atmosphere, and horror almost. Like, there is a wonderful balance that Sandberg kind of throws in there that makes it, it makes it a very well-rounded film. He has said in interviews that some of his inspirations are the Goonies and Gremlins, and guess what? This film kind of reminds me of watching those films because they were PG films before PG-13 was invented, and they were a little bit more adult, but it was also kid-friendly to where kids can enjoy it, parents could also enjoy it, and it has a little bit for um, everybody, and uh, I kind of like that, you know. When you present a movie that, you know, has like this comedy edge to it, I do get worried a little bit because I'm like, oh, no, they're going to try to push this comedy really hard and it's just not going to work. Like, you know, uh, take, for instance, the last one, Aquaman, where like, you know, the humor in that one didn't really work for me as much. It was just like they were trying too hard. Sandberg presents this movie in that tone and I was all for it. Like everything about the comedy worked, the heartfelt stuff worked, the character worked. The script writing, the uh, action sequences, the drama, the the villainry, the uh, just everything about it, I think just it clicks into this really enjoyable watch to where you just you you feel everything like you feel excited. You, I laughed super hard. I was telling Joel uh, one of my favorite scenes towards the end. I was I was dying laughing at that scene, and then there were some scenes that caught me off guard. They had to do with Mark Strong's character, so it wasn't afraid to push the envelope a little bit. And I, I, I just, I absolutely just, I, I love the um, ambition there that uh, Sandberg had, and wasn't willing to compromise and go all the way kid friendly, but not all the way like super dark. It's like it's a little bit of both worlds, and um, I think that for the Shazam par- property, it's perfect. So, um, you know, so I, I think uh, for the most part, I think Sandberg really understood how to capture this world. That was set in this kind of like grounded reality that we can grasp to, but also this fantasy element because we are dealing with wizards and magic and stuff, and it it blends the best of both worlds, and that's really hard to do to have like these grounded characters that we can all follow and uh, relate to, and then also have this fantasy element with a little boy saying Shazam and growing up to be a. Um, uh, a Superman, if you will. And so, you know, uh, it's very hard to balance. And I, I thought Sandberg, for doing a big picture like this for the first time, I thought did a very good job, especially given the budget that he had because he, he was given a smaller budget than uh, normal filmmakers. To move on to the performances, I think this 100% makes or breaks the movie. It, all the kids are wonderful. Um ranging from the teenagers who have, you know, that teenager attitude and personality. They have the angst. They have the, the sassiness. They have the um, the likability. They have the humor. Like, they're teenagers, and I think all there, of them... Sorry to sorry to cut in. There is not a single wrong note in those performances. And, no. and it's amazing that they were able to get that level of consistency. Right, because child acting is very, very hit and miss, and usually yeah. in movies... You you might get something like uh, uh, Joel. What's like a what's like a bad child performance you can reference like from like the past like five years? Uh, usually I try to block them out, but I'll think. Um... <laughs> I, I'm I'm just trying to give references to like right. these kids in 
and Shazam are so good that it it just makes everyone else look mediocre or terrible. But yeah. th- that's the importance of casting, folks. And you have a wider range of people um, with um, the teenagers and the small children. Uh, I think all of them hit their beats in terms of their personalities and the way they're written, and just everything just seemed to fit um, pretty naturally with her performances. And you know, with the um, uh, what was I going to say? And, and I'm sorry. Uh, before I continue, I, I don't know why I feel a little off uh, with this episode. Uh, I, as I keep talking, I don't know why, why my brain is just dying every single time I I come up with a sentence. So I apologize if I if I'm stuttering a lot more or whatnot on this episode. Uh, uh, my apologies. All right, so so I, I talked about the kids. The adults in this movie are wonderful as well, I, and I, I really do think that if you did not cast the adult Shazam correctly, this movie would have failed because that that role could have easily turned into this goofy, annoying presence that you don't want in your film, and that is the that's supposed to be the forefront of your movie. I think Zachary Levi is perfect casting in terms of he's such a likable actor to begin with. And when you have him in, you know, this type of superhero environment, he has that superhero build. He's got the the Superman look. He looks the part. But what's really special about his performance is that he has to act like a teenager because that is who he is. He is a 14-year-old that has grown up. And so he has these... uh, teenager isms if you will and he you know kind of talks fast he stumbles in his speech like he has the the kind of quick wit of a teenager like that's a really hard thing to do as an adult and I think he really did a great job not being annoying or over the top like it's just like that right right amount of charm that works for the teenager portion um that he's trying to uh convey but it's also great because as the movie progresses billy has this wonderful arc of really kind of finding himself finding his family and you can see that performance because he stays as shazam most of the time so you can see that performance in zachary levi changing from his tone and attitude towards the very end when you can kind of see the growth it's all within levi's performance and his facial structure um, that gives it away. And of course, the action sequence, he's very convincing um, as a Shazam. If you guys are not familiar with the lore, um, Shazam is basically Superman. <laughs> he's invincible. He flies. Um, he's got super strength, super speed. So he's pretty much except, like... Except that he's a state of being, not an alien. Right. That's the that's only difference. That's pretty much the so, only difference. <laughs> yeah. So he, yeah. he is an actual human being. He's not an alien. And so, you know, given the action sequences... You know, Mark Strong's character does go toe-to-toe with him, not giving anything away, but he is on the same level as him. Not the same powers or whatever, but um, if you watch it, you understand. But same level. So that's good, though, because if you have someone that's invincible, it's really hard to make us, I guess, fear for their danger if, if they're just punching stuff and they don't get hurt. The fact that Mark Strong was equal to him, you did feel like somewhat of dread because you're like, oh, wow, this guy could actually take him down. Um, type of deal. So the action sequences were pretty, pretty well handled given their budget. Um, uh, very, very playful and fun uh, type of comic book fair that we we all expect nowadays. But it just you know, I think with the combination of Levi in the suit and just the way 
uh, everything was kind of presented. It was just it had like this very very fun playful attitude even in its action sequences. Mark Strong is great as the villain. He's very menacing. He's always been the type of actor to where he could be a very good assistant in Kingsman, or he could be a uh, a menace in Green Lantern, or a menace in this, and still pull it off. Like he's he's that good of an actor. Um, yes, he was in Green Lantern. Um, but yeah, in not, this one, forgot the first Kickass. <laughs> do what? You forgot the first Kickass. Yeah, yeah, and the first Kickass as well. Um, and so. He he's one of these guys to where if you want to cast him as the villain for any comic book movie, I'm totally down for it. But the reason why I like him so much is that he's not like this typical villain. Like, oh, I'm angry at the world and everybody. I'm just gonna like I'm gonna take over the world. There's a lot of depth into his character because from the very first scene, we are introduced to this theme of uh, rejection as a kid, uh, children not being loved by their parents and being neglected. And then also that translating over into the Billy Batson story where he is an orphan. And so he's trying to find his place. And, you know, he was neglected as a kid and abandoned. And so, you know, trying to find his peace. And Mark Strong Mark Strong is trying to find his peace with his, uh, with his past. But he takes a more different route. And that's what makes it a little bit more complex. And I love the, um, the power set that uh, Mark Strong has. Not going to give it away. But there's something to do with the very, very end that uh, Shazam tries to pull out of him that is actually really great, not just uh, as a visual and for the character, but a really great script writing kind of, uh, you know, plot written in there. It was uh, it was really well uh, realized. But the one scene, and I don't know if Joel agrees with me, but the one scene that made me convinced that Mark Strong was excellent in this movie, like he was great leading up into this, but the boardroom scene, was the scene that it was actually the the scene that was not only established for him as a villain, but for the movie as a whole. Because up until that point, we did get a little dark and a little bit more mature with the opening scene, but it kind of died off. And, you know, we kind of had this very bright atmosphere of a movie. And so I was like, okay, okay, this is nice and lovely. And you're sitting there enjoying the movie. And there's something that Mark Strong does to one of the people in the boardroom that was very unexpected. I didn't even think they would even show that. They showed it, and then I shut up. I like had my mouth to the floor type of deal. I was like, okay, this guy means business. And I like that. I like that kind of switch to where you know, Sandberg makes you feel like, oh, this is just an, uh, an angry kid. He wants to... Um, get revenge on people because you know he's he's evil and he's he's poopy he's he's a poo poo head and she's like no 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 he's not like he goes into this boardroom and just wrecks shop um and then also uh that also kind of that scene there's other scenes like this but you know that scene kind of highlights sandberg's horror roots because there's one shot with um people hitting glass um Mm, and one person reacting to it that kind of remind me of like a horror film so once again just kind of um the director's stamp um, on that scene. But that scene right there was like the one scene that made me realize that this film is willing to go back and forth and be a little bit more edgy. Um, and then also establish his character. So very well, very well uh, realized scene. Um, and then all the other uh, people in the movie, I won't, I'm not going to say much, but there's some cameos. Very, very good cameos. Very good casting. That's all I'll say. Um, Joel and I were discussing this last night. It's just, it's, 
It's the type of genius casting that makes me angry that uh, casting directors don't get as much recognition <laughs> because it, the way they casted these cameos were, were pretty fantastic. Um, and I guess uh, other than that, it's a very it's a very brisk movie. There's nothing that like drowns it in you know uh, th- like um, a slow pace. It's just it, it has like this really kind of like fun energy to it, and it also just kind of makes you um, sit there in awe from the world building they're they're kind of creating. And I'm telling you right now, uh, when you watch the end credit scene. You're not going to have any idea who it is. I'm telling you right now because I didn't either. And it was the Thanos situation where after the first Avengers, I had to go home and do research because I thought that was a scroll. And I was like, oh, Thanos, he's bad. Okay, cool. And so I had to look up the end credits scene. I was like, oh, that's what that is. Okay. So it was one of those situations. But um, yeah, it's it's just a it, – it's one of those movies that reminds me of something like from the 80s or anything else prior to that it's very uh it's a very light-hearted movie definitely a great palate cleanser to something that we're going to get with like Endgame or even with Captain Marvel to some degree and I, I still think it's a bad idea to release it this weekend and um I'll explain why uh before before we uh tap out of this episode I'm going to read some numbers that um uh, I found out from their screenings last night but uh yeah, I think if you want to take your family to a superhero film that has a lot of great messages to it, it's not preachy, it's just a really great uh, character movie, it's really well written, it's rousing as a, a crowd-pleasing action film and superhero film, it sets up its own universe, like its own Shazam universe, and I kind of love that, that it can go to these multiple different directions and, you know... Uh, kind of do whatever it wants type of deal. So the, the possibilities are endless with this uh, storyline. That's what gets me the most excited. But I just thought everything about this movie, just it kind of clicked for me, and I had a really great time. And I, uh, I, don't, give it, I don't give the grade unless I, unless I think it deserves it. I think it's an A. Um, I don't have any problems with it, to be honest with you. There might be like some awkward lines of dialogue with humor, that may not come across well to some people. Cause I know that there were pockets in my audience that just was not enjoying some of the humor, but I think comedy subjectiveness aside, I still think people will enjoy this movie. Even if you aren't like a comic book fan or you're looking to take, you know, your family out to see something. I think this is the, the movie to do it. And I'm comfortable with giving it an A. Um, I, I really had a blast with it. The, I only have a complaint. I literally have a complaint as a fan. If you're going to announce Dwayne Johnson as Black Adam, what seems like a hundred years ago, can we not at least reference him in the movie or something? This is his universe now. So if you're going to announce him back in, I think it was like 2014 or 13, and he hasn't been anything since, he's he's an executive producer on Shazam. This was your opportunity to do something with this character to where... It didn't even have to be the end credit scene, but just like his name, like on a piece of paper or a book or uh, when Billy's talking to the wizard anywhere. I, I just, I don't understand like why you couldn't do that, but that that's not nothing to do with the movie. That's just me being a, a, a crying fanboy. boy. Um, 
But yeah, I think uh, as a movie as it stands, definitely one of the best in the DC uh, universe for sure. I, I'd say it's a top three. If you want to talk about the the incarnations from Man of Steel until now, definitely a top three. So uh, that is my thoughts on Shazam. And it's my top one uh, of the DCEU. Um, this movie blew me away. I, I, I think that um, in many, many ways, it's one of the best superhero movies I've seen in a long time about being a superhero, what it means, and the, lear- the lessons you learn along the way. I know that, that suddenly makes it sound like an after-school special, but it's not. It's such a well-rounded movie, and I think that that's the perfect word to describe this. There's a bunch of comedy. There's a really touching story about family here that that surprised me. I mean, it's also about the harsh realities of family, what family technically means, who your family is, and who your family, if they're blood, really is. And there's a lot of harsh stuff that, that goes on with uh, with his journey to find his mother. And I, I think that I really appreciated all of that. Um, and that's really at the heart of this, I, you know, particularly when it comes to the ending. And we won't get into that. Uh, it involves those cameos that you said. Um, how, you know, what that scene means, the build up to it, the acts that the people take um, that are involved in that scene that, that lead to the cameos. Um, it's all meaningful and it all has a place in the movie's theme. It's not just you know trying to build a a, a base of, of actors for a big climax. It's, it's not just that, although it works again. Uh, although it works as that, um, there's much more going on under, underneath the surface there. Um, and you know, again, it's like you. It's basically everything you said, honestly. But um, you're so right in that casting Shazam is crucial to this movie and they have struck the mother load. I think that this is probably this is this. It reminds me of seeing Chris Hemsworth as Thor for the first time. Um, there's an endless amount of charm here to the, to the actor playing the character and to the character. Um, I mean, also the character because he's a 14 year old kid who thinks he's on top of the world at first is kind of, you know, sometimes a douchebag. And so, I think that I think that Levi is able to play the those notes as well in this big suit that's essentially the kid's ego brought to life. That that's the he's the id he's the id of this guy's uh, personality. And I think that if you cast an actor who plays way too much to the room, who plays it way too theatrically, then you turn off the viewers. And if you have somebody who plays it with too much of a wink in his eye, um, I think that you have this i think that you do the same thing you you run into the same problem and so now because of levi and the way that he plays this role it's perfectly it's perfectly uh pitched between um kind of a big theatrical performance and just a big comedic performance and those are two very different things to me and i think that that is uh, striking the the balance between those two kind of states is really important. He does. He basically is, as Mark puts it, our friend Mark, and that's who um, that's who Chase was referring to. Uh, Mark Dusick has this as his first four-star movie of the year, and he basically said this: that Zachary Levi plays him as an affable fool. That, that's that's what he does, and that's that's the most important thing that you can do for a role like this. 
because it's a 14 year old kid in a body that's suddenly about three times as big as his real body, um, becoming a hero and using that to, you know, first kind of be the celebrity around town, making small saves, but mostly just causing nonsense to occur, like what he does with a bus, for instance. Um, and then you have the later scenes where he has to learn about, uh, you know, kind of Spider-Man's lesson almost, which is, you know, the thing about power and responsibility. And I think that it takes that seriously to some degree. It doesn't take the mechanics of Shazam as a hero seriously because there's nothing here that you can take seriously. It's not even worth it. Uh, the the setup is really absurd about how he can just say his name and then become the become Shazam. Totally absurd and how he gets the power and all of that. But it's more about what being a superhero represents. And and I think that that's where this movie hits uh, hits the mark so well. Um, but even then, I mean, even then you have to reckon with the fact that this movie has one of the strongest villains in recent times. I think that, I think that Thad or Savannah, whatever you want to call this guy. Um, I think that he's as strong as Thanos as a villain. I think that there's as much going on beneath the surface. He's essentially without giving anything super duper away, even though that's kind of in the first, his introduction kind of sets this up. You can kind of tell that this is what's going to happen. He's a dark reflection of the hero. That's what he is. And he's just, there's so much going on there beneath the surface. And I think that that's why he's, he works so well. And Mark Strong's great. Even when, and I'm not going to give anything away about how this comes about, but Shazam, and I hope you agree with me on this, Shazam at one point in the climax is fighting a special effects creation, right? And even then, when the movie could have just completely plummeted and become suddenly about this big visual effects creation that that he has to fight, well, it's not really big, but you know, this this kind of over the top special effects creation, it's still grounded. It's a one one, it's a brief fight, and two, it's still grounded. Um, you can still feel the threat of the villain, even as that transformation occurs. Uh, and again, I'm being vague here. Y'all have no idea what I'm talking about because we haven't talked about his motivation, really, or his uh, his not his motivation, his mechanism um, for villainy. Um, even as that occurs, the movie still remains, to some degree, uh, as grounded as it can. And I think that what it's grounded in is the um, the kind of the ways that the the character just kind of uh, the, the, all the characters just kind of uh, are able to um, service the material rather than you know like special effects servicing the material rather than just the story being a vehicle for visual effects. I think that that's what the most important thing is and. It's uh, it's great, and I think that um, the action scenes, you know, there's not just there's not just a sense of fun. I think that there's a real weight to these scenes, and I think that there's um, a real sense of danger. You know, think about the bus sequence, which I kind of was reminded of the opening train crash in The Fugitive, in terms of the uh, the level of intensity and and everything and. You know, it briefly puts something else in danger for maybe for laughs, but it also plays it kind of straight. It's a great scene. Um, 
I think that uh, just a small note on the visual effects, which I think are superb across the board. The, this is not only some of the best visual effects, but some of the best green screen work. We talk about uh, a lot about green screen work. I think that they actually do a really good job of it here. Um, but the other thing was that I think that this movie perfects flying effects uh, in a way that I, I think will be talked about. I, I, to the degree that I was questioning how they, how they did it, because it's almost as if it, more than any other movie I've seen – the characters actually fill the space with their bodies being their bodies flying around, As, especially during the uh, the training montage. Yes, and yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like there's it's weird. It's like there's medium shots of people flying while the character. Well, it's, it's interesting. So it's hard to describe it. Uh, you'll if you see the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. But especially during the training sequence, it's like the camera still kind of moves around with the characters as they fly, which is something that doesn't really seem to happen a lot. We we usually get like really far off shots as they zoom up and we see a little visual effects creation go up. You know, um, even Cap- even Captain Marvel did this just recently. Um, it, it almost kind of reminded me of the uh, kind of cinematography and uh, kind of style of like Chronicle or something. Yes, yeah, that's a really good, uh, really good comparison. Yeah, there was a lot of really good flying uh, photography in that too, and um, but yeah, it's just it's just amazing. Uh, they should just win the Oscar for visual effects just for that, honestly, because I don't know how it's going to get more genuinely like mind-boggling in terms of when you're thinking about logistics, um, and that says a lot. It's a really uh, really good compliment. So yeah, just everything about this, uh, you know. Um, the villain has threat, the characters are likable, um, the characters are human, there's a real sense of family to them because the actors are so good. All of these kids are great, all of the adults are great. And on the note, on your note about the adults, um, I think that this is a weird comparison. But I honestly, in terms of how seriously and... It, how seriously the adult actors seem to take this. I was almost kind of reminded of all the teachers and all of the adults in the Harry Potter series. Because what you could have had with that series is just a bunch of adult actors saying, oh, this is going to be a cute, fun time. Let's play to the room. Um, let's let's just kind of, you know, kind of phone in our performances. And they didn't do that. And here, they don't do that either. You, you get really good performances from... Um, you know, Mark Strong from the two foster parents, those really uh, solid uh, appearances, not much, you know, we, just, we don't see them much. The scene with um, with Billy's mom is great. And I just, I love that. And I think that, um, I, I, I just, I think it's, it's a tremendous piece of work all around. And uh, yeah, I, I'm almost, I'm also with an A. This, this is an easy A. For me to give it's one of the best movies of the year i think it's going to stay up there for me for a while um it's a great superhero movie and i i think that we maybe uh have taken a lot of those for granted it's just been a really strong like uh uh a strong selection of superhero movies these past few years with this and stuff like thor ragnarok and in the MCU that's sort of, sort of compar- comparable to this kind of tone. I think that Thor Ragnarok is honestly a pretty good comparison, actually, 
same uh, mixture of, of comedy and, and heartfeltness, um, to use a not word. Um, well, and you've been pretty blown yeah. away just by this year because you really love Captain Marvel, and now you got this I, one. I did. I have a feeling – I have this weird, like, gut feeling Hellboy's going to stop that. <laughs> but it, it probably we'll will, s- but then it'll get back on track with Endgame, probably. hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going to be a very brief bump. I, I I haven't seen the trailers for, for Hellboy, but I saw, like, a muted – uh, a few seconds that auto played on Facebook of apparently some sort of big battle. And it was the most, it was like the ugliest photography and the ugliest visual effects. I'm not looking forward to that. Now the movie itself will speak for itself. I'm not judging it yet, but I'm not looking forward to it either, honestly. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I we'll see, we'll see what happened. Um, what happens here. And, uh, anyway, so big, big fan of this one though. And I think that it's probably going to stay somewhere near the top of, of the year for me. I, I can't wait to to some like it's going to be freaky if by the end of the year we're all talking about Shazam as being, uh, you know, you, me and Mark and maybe another person, um, if 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 anything, uh, talks about this movie being on like all of or most of our top tens. Like it's going to be strange. It's just going to be strange to think that. Um, cause I never would have thought this before seeing Shazam. I never would have thought that I would like it this much. And, um, and I do, it's, it's, uh, it's a great piece of work. So A's for both of us. Definitely avoid this one. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, but, uh, definitely go out and see this one. Great, Actually, great, great. uh, to Joel's, uh, snarky joke over there, please go watch it. This movie's not doing well. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, it suffered from the same problem as, um, uh, what was it? Love Simon, where it had so many like preview screenings leading up to its release that it didn't really do that well. It, Shazam had like like three to six like showings two weeks ago, and it made a lot of money uh, back then. And I have seen online, and uh, I, I can even tell you from experience, just from last night, our, our theater was half full. And a lot of people are saying online that they're some of the only people in there. There's only like a group of people in them. So it sounds like this movie is, I think people are just kind of writing it off and like, oh, I'll just wait until Endgame or whatever. We're telling you right now, go watch it. Go support it, please. Uh, you know, DC, like I said, doesn't really hit it out of the ballpark often. This is one of those cases. So please um, get this movie to a billion dollars and maybe we can you know, get it to the same level as Aquaman. Cause I don't think that one deserved a billion. So, you know, uh, do that one instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Alrighty folks. Uh, so surprise, I have brought back my old thing, the best films of a particular year. Um, and in this case, it's going to be, um, Something that I accidentally closed. So hold on one second. <laughs> well, uh, uh, you know, as you're finding that, if you are, if this is your first ever like episode listening to the show, what we've been doing uh, since the start of the year, um, you know, it's 2019. We have one more. This is our final year left in the um, the decade, and and so you know, Joel wanted to kind of go over our top ten uh, films uh, from years that were not. Uh, um, um, displayed on the show, and so that's what we're kind of doing each month at the top. Of or the at month. least with me, 
right. me. So, so for the uninitiated who are listening to this for the first time, I joined the show back in March of or April or whatever of 2017. So before that point, uh, Chase, who's had this going since 2013, I think November of that year, um, he did top 10 at the end of the year episodes with a guy named Jackson, uh, who joined him until I I joined the show. And in fact, uh, you know, really the only reason he dropped out wasn't because of me, but because of his kind of being busy with other things. So before 2017, I didn't do top tens. Um, now before 2013, of course, Chase didn't do, do top tens. So soon he's going to be kind of joining me and giving people kind of new information about him. And I'm, I've been giving people new information about me and Chase has been kind of briefly recapping. So that's what we've been doing, and um, you can go back, uh, look at the, I think, pretty much always the first episode at the, um, the start of the month. Maybe one time we didn't do that. I think, I think it's pretty much consistently been that, though. Um, I've been, I started with 2016 to start with the year before I started Top Tens here, and uh, I've been just kind of counting back the years. And so until so we get with, to 2010. With that being said, if this is your first time listening to this and you only came here for Shazam, we'll see you next week. Yes, exactly, exactly. You may not be interested in this uh, part, but whatever the case, if you are a longtime listener and you're used to us uh, by now, uh, enjoy. So basically, uh, I'm just going to, of course, quickly run through my 10 through 6. Um, and so just to kind of quick recap, the Best Picture winner from 2013 was 12 Years a Slave. Um from director Steve McQueen, and that's where my list starts. Yes, it's at number 10 for me. Um, it's higher for a lot of people, including my co-host. Um, but this is where I have it, really raw portrayal of slavery um, right in the midst of uh, its strongest moments, um, its strongest, the, the most uh, despicable parts of its, of its, of its time on this earth, um, particularly through the vantage point of a man who was free and sold into slavery by a, an acquaintance, um, based on a memoir uh, by Solomon Northup. Great, great piece of work. Uh, somehow, my only my number ten, but whatever. Number nine, the spectacular now um, from director James Ponsold, who casts Miles Teller and Shailene Woodley in a love story that is also a pretty comprehensive study of alcoholism on a young man. Um, and it's a great love story, too. And, in fact, love stories are going to factor into this list quite a lot later on. Um, great piece of work. I know Chase is probably really mad at me now. Uh, number eight, The World's End. Uh, this was, uh, although I love the, I love both of them, uh, this was my favorite of the two end-of-world comedies that came out in 2013. Maybe the slightly less popular one. This one didn't do well at the box office. But it's also Edgar Wright's best movie, in my opinion. It's his deepest, it's his funniest, and it's his most consistently uh, well-edited, actually. I think that this possibly is his best-edited movie, yes, even over Baby Driver. Um, I love this thing, and I wish more people had seen it in theaters. You can all see it now on Blu-ray. Please do so. Uh, my number seven, Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, this one has the weary soul of, of the Coen brothers, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's kind of a cousin to that. And I think that it works just as well. Uh, Oscar Isaac, Carrie Mulligan, Adam Driver, Justin Timberlake. Great cast all the way through. John Goodman has a great uh, segment in this that a lot of people don't like and I love. 
Um, this is one that was not originally on my top 10. Not that anybody knows what that is, but um, uh, my original top 10 looked very different than, than it does now. This was not on it because I didn't see it in time. But if I had, it would be on it, and it, and it obviously is now. It's my number seven. Number six probably should be higher, but whatever. And it's right outside my top five. I can't believe it, but it's Gravity from uh, Alfonso Cuaron. It's a roller coaster of a movie, but it's also a little bit more than that. There's a lot about a mother's uh, love for her daughter in this. And I think that it is, uh, it's kind of deceptively simple. So I love that uh, about it. And it's, uh, it's a great piece of work. But, all right, I said that love stories were going to factor pretty heavily into my list. And all five of my top five, are love stories. Um, <clears throat> they're love stories of a different kind in many ways, um, all different kinds, but it kind of using love stories in different ways for different purposes uh, of different kinds and through different prisms of genre. Um, they're not all romances, but they are all love stories. So my number five is probably the least likely one Yet it is a love story, and it's probably my favorite Danny Boyle film, and that is Trance. Um, this one stars James McAvoy as a, um, uh, a kind of a he's he's part of a gang. He's been involved in the in the um, the heist of a painting, and he gets knocked out, uh, and he forgets where the painting is, and so they enlist the help of a hypnotherapist played by uh, Rosario Dawson to help him figure that out. Where is the painting? And it crosses genres from... It's basically like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind if it crossed with a gangster movie. Um, that's pretty much how I like to describe this, although it's also beyond any sort of description, um, particularly because of the fact that the character that a character played by Vincent Cassell, who's originally positioned as the, as the villain of the piece, is made to be deeper and more human. Um, as the uh, film goes on, and he ultimately has equal kind of uh, screen time as McAvoy and Dawson do. Um, I think that this film is beautiful in a way that is incredibly, uh, just vivid, vividly beautiful. It's got great cinematography by Anthony Dodd Mantle, who also shot Slumdog Millionaire. Um, he works a lot with Boyle. And, um, but yeah, I, I was just blown away by this movie. Uh, it's Probably my pick for the most underrated of 2013's films. It doesn't seem like a lot of people saw it, and uh, and more need, and more people need to. So my number five is Trance. My number four is a culmination of probably the greatest cinematic love story of a long time from now, <laughs> backward, and that is Before Midnight uh, from director Richard Linklater, which of course followed Before Sunset in 2004, which followed Before Sunrise in 1995. And uh, once again, we get Celine and, uh, and Jesse, played by Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke, both screenwriters on the project with Linklater. And once again, we have Linklater, um, you know, this, the next year after this, he, he released Boyhood, and, uh, which is his big, long 12-year project. And now here we have the culmination of, or what we think is the culmination. There could be more movies of this. But um, for right now, it's a trilogy of movies that... Um, are incredibly meaningful about love in a very real way. Um, and it's, and it's interesting what this movie's trying to examine too, because as our friend Mark Dusick put it in his review, 
if before sunset was about whether or not love could survive a long period of absence, this movie is about whether love can survive a long period of presence. And I think that that's pretty uh, profound. Um, it goes to darker places than this series was known for uh, because it introduces kind of ideas of cynicism into this relationship. And I think it's incredibly beautiful. Uh, and it's also just incredibly beautiful to look at. I think it's probably uh, Linklater's best made movie uh, in terms of the cinematography. The editing was on point in a way that I thought uh, maybe a little looser in the uh, earlier movies. And uh, yeah, Linklater's just one of the modern masters. I love the guy. Uh, my number three... Okay, so people are probably going to scoff at this choice because it's an incredibly popular movie and people kind of allowed the quality of the movie to disappear into the hype surrounding it and its major song and people are probably knowing where I'm going with this but my number three is Frozen which I think is the best film in the modern uh, era of Disney this comeback renaissance period whatever you want to call it that they've had um, that started with Tangled and continued on with Wreck-It Ralph and then further continued with this I think that this is the strongest film it's a movie about sibling love again love story but not a romantic one, although it does use romantic love in some aspects of it. Um, but I think that this movie kind of is sneaky in the way that it redefines the entire idea of one of one true love, kind of true love's uh, power to make everything right. Um, because here it lies in the love between siblings, ultimately, rather than the love between a prince and a princess. And I think that, uh, in fact, it also twists that and it makes what initially seems like a prince-princess prince story into something a little more uh, ominous uh, when we see the true, the true colors of the prince. And I think that this just – basically this movie kind of redefines itself as it goes in really interesting and, um, and uh, very lasting ways that people have since kind of underestimated because of the fact that it has so many songs that are so – popular especially let it go which had so much airwave and um airtime whatever um but i think it's i think it's better than that i think it's one of the best films of that year uh and the best animated film of that year for me so there's that and then uh my number two another love story this time between two young women um and it's a three-hour epic called blue is the warmest color which i have every knowledge of the controversy that has arisen out of this movie since it released, um, particularly surrounding the director's um, treatment of the actresses in question, Leia Seydoux and Adele Exarchopoulos, uh, the latter playing the, um, the lead role of Adele. Uh, I know all of that. Um, it does make me uneasy about the production of the movie, but whatever the case, we have a movie to watch, and the movie itself is great. Um, it's a great sprawling uh, examination of an entire arc of love, which I think is every bit as kind of groundbreaking in its in its scope as the before trilogy, and uh, every bit kind of holds up to any one movie in that series. Uh, clearly, I think it's slightly better um, in a way that I put it higher on a list than Before Midnight. Um, I think that everything about this, particularly the last scene between these two lovers um, is heart wrenching and I, and I love it. I, I love every second of it. And 
all of 179 minutes. It's a long movie. It's not an easy sit sometimes. There's a lot of explicit sex. There's a lot of heartbreak. And there's a lot of uh, the main character being kind of a blank slate in terms of the moding. But it is uh, a real rewarding sit if you are willing to go through it. So love that movie. It's my number two. However, and I'm going to try to say this sentence in as non-weird way as possible. Um, but maybe there's not a way to do that. The best love story of 2013 was between a man and his computer. Uh, and that is Spike Jones's Her, uh, which stars Joaquin Phoenix in one of his best performances um, as a lonely man who um, decides to purchase or whatever, install an, an operating system in his computer that is artificially intelligent. She calls herself Samantha, and she is voiced by Scarlett Johansson um, in one of the best vocal performances of the decade. Uh, this is an incredible movie. I think that it's interesting because I, I, I evoked uh, Eternal Sunshine earlier, and this is very similar to that. It's, it's very much in the same kind of real-life but sci-fi-tinged um, uh, kind of material that, that, that Jones is working with. And in fact, he has worked with Charlie Kaufman before Kaufman wrote Eternal Sunshine for director uh, Michelle Gondry. And I think that both of these movies kind of work together as uh, love stories with a twist, um, but that never lose their honesty. And that's why it just kind of blew me away. And it's also, I don't even know if you knew this, Chase, about this movie, but it's also amazing that you have Phoenix interacting with Scarlett Johansson when, in fact, he did not interact with Scarlett Johansson. He is listening to the voice of Samantha Morton, who was originally cast in the role, and then because of something that happened and they had to redo it, uh, Morton was no longer available, so they had to get Johansson in. So Phoenix is not actually interacting with Johansson. Now, of course, Johansson is interacting with Phoenix in some de in, to some degree, but you didn't have the actor then also interacting with the actress So in any way. So it's really amazing that they were able to make a movie this cohesive and this um, this romantic uh, between two actors, one of whom is basically just listening to a recording, the other is not even listening to that actress. It's, it's, it's amazing to me. And is the best screenplay of any movie in 2013. It has the most daring structure, the most daring turns, the most daring character uh, motivations and developments. I think that – I keep coming back to that word. It's a daring film. It is – you know, it might sound hipster or whatever to say it about this particular movie, but it, it for me was the most lasting piece of uh, of art uh, that 2013 offered. A great year in movies, and um, yeah, I just I was blown away by it, and I and I love her. So that is my top ten. To kind of recap my my top five, Transit number five, uh, before Midnight at number four, Frozen at number three, Blue is the warmest color at number two, and Her at number one. So. Um, any thoughts on mine on my list? Anything you haven't seen? Um, I don't think so because I've actually caught up on a lot of stuff in terms of like what I've missed. Um, um, yeah, no, I I really really can't think of anything. I I've eventually seen all yours slash some of them might be on my list slash I'm regretting putting them 
where I did on my list. Like, so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of emotions going on. So my, uh, top 10 of 2013, this was a very special year for me. This was the first year that, uh, I met the, the woman that Joel and I do reviews for, you know, I, I met her in line for, uh, this actually goes into my top 10 cause it's on here somewhere. But, um, there was a specific movie where a director was going to be at and, I was like, uh, I need to be there. So I, I don't work at this place anymore. So even if they listened, uh, who cares? I said I was sick and I left work because I wanted to get in line early. Um, it was a, a screening where the director was going to be there. I wanted to get there early so I'd have a chance to, uh, you know, meet this director or at least like say hi to him or something. And so I got there. And, uh, it was like at 1 PM. Right. And I remember, uh, this lady came and sat next to me with her lawn chair and she's like, I'm looking for writers. I was like, I, I, I don't write. Um, she's like, Oh, that's okay. Just, uh, just try your best. So, uh, that's where that began. And my first one I actually saw was spring breakers. That was my first ever press screening. Um, yeah, I wish it was something different, but you know, a, I can't, it's a re- great movie. Yeah. It's I can't really go back movie. in time. Um, so, um, <laughs> But I will say that my second one um, that I really enjoyed, uh, or my second like press screening that I, I, I ever had, is on my list somewhere. So the list, top ten, two thousand and thirteen. So the uh, number ten is uh, Dallas Buyers Club, uh, the film where McConaughey finally won his Oscar. Um, definitely not the one where I was blown away, where I thought he should have deserved an Oscar. That would have been Killer Joe. But because um, that was a couple years prior, but this one is still a worthy win. Of course, Jared Leto also won uh, for his role in the film. It's just a really, uh, it's it's a sad tale, but it's also um, it's a film that exercises really well in acting and cinematography and just really kind of this calm directing. That's not it's not like boisterous. It's not like in your face. It's just it's really just this tone kind of, management. Tone yeah. management. Right, exactly, and so, um, it, it, oh, I mean, that's that's his style now that I know, because like this was his first ever film that I had seen the director, and then of course, you know, he did Wild and the Big Little Lies series, and it's the same type of tone management throughout all of his projects, and so I I kind of like it, you know, it's it, it's something to where he lets the actors breathe, let them do their thing, and lets the story kind of speak for itself, and um, that's what Dallas Buyers Club was to me. It was it's a very transformative movie. Um, in a lot of ways, in terms of the filmmaking and the performances, just a really great one. Um, my number nine, I kind of wish it was a little higher. Uh, and I'm now slapping myself uh, for not putting it higher. But uh, my number nine is uh, Before Midnight. I uh, kind of wish it was uh, a little higher because, as Joel stated, it is it will, like, when Joel and I, like, perish off of this earth and film is around, um, it will go down as one of the best love stories of all time. And I, I don't say that lightly. I think it will. Um, I, I watched all three movies in one night. Uh, I was introduced by them by actually a gentleman that I used to do a couple collabs with on YouTube. And he actually got me into podcasting. So I actually have him to thank for what you're listening to right now. Um, but he introduced me to the, the, the movies. And I watched all three in one night. I went to work the next day and it was awful because I was tired, but it was so worth it because it was such a 
just it was a very sober experience because as Joel stated, it's a very like kind of grounded take on romance in a relationship. It, all three movies are like ninety nine percent dialogue. It's just people talking. That's all it is. But that's what makes it so human, and so grounded. Is just mm-hmm. people going back and forth, having these real conversations, and it, it, it's written in a fictitious world. So it's just like you know, it, it's it's kind of amazing that um, Linklater can make movies like this, and that I, I think Joel is correct. He's he's one of the best of our time, uh, hands down. Oh yeah, and he actually hails from our state, so um, yep. he still has his uh, his home down in Austin. I think he still has his studios down there, so. He still rocks it out uh, just a couple hours away from us. Um, uh, number eight, I got to go with Gravity. Um, it, uh, it it was a visual spectacle when I watched it in theaters, but seeing Alfonso's work before that, I knew there was gonna it was gonna be more than just a visual treat. Um, yes, it is impressively shot by Lubeski. Uh, the um, CGI and green screen work is is breathtaking. But it's also just a really great um, kind of uh, survival tale. It's a really great um, urgent tale. You know, this is a film that kicks off within the first 10 minutes of its its problem, its conflict, and they have to get going or they're going to die. And it's, it's, very, it's a very rousing experience. Um, there are several moments where Sandra Bullock really shines in her role and really get to see uh, a little bit more with her character and... It's, uh, it's it's very subtle acting from her and Clooney. Uh, I would have been very interested if uh, Downey Jr. Uh, actually got to play the role that Clooney played because he was originally offered that role, but uh, I guess we'll never know. But yeah, Gravity is a is a really great film. Um, uh, Prisoners is my number seven. My first uh, Denis Villeneuve experience uh, and completely blown away by him. Uh, and then, of course, seeing you know Enemy and Arrival and... Uh, Blade Runner and all that stuff. He, he's just he's just so good. I, I just I, I can't stand the fact that he just um, he did a film before Prisoners, but he kind of exploded with Prisoners, and he just kind of came out of nowhere in terms of where I saw him. And then he just I can't believe he uh, he's that good. But Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, it, setting aside the fact that his name is Detective Loki, uh, everything else about that movie is uh, fantastic. To the very dirty kind of like grungy cinematography where it just feels really dark and disturbing. It feels like one of those, uh, uh, true life murder tales that you would listen to on a podcast or something. It just has that kind of like overall kind of like dread and feel to it. The acting is off the charts. It's, uh, you know, shot by Deacons. It's, it's beautiful at the same time while it's also disturbing. It's just, it's a really great kind of murder, mystery um type of drama and you know it for all those people that have never seen Hugh Jackman outside of uh you know his X-Men films this is one of those ones where I would direct to you um and tell you that he he is uh really good at what he does and it's not just the comic book stuff or even he's he's a powerhouse in this thing yeah he's he's, I mean because he he's desperate he's trying to find his kid and you know he 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 goes to lengths where you understand why he's doing it, but he's doing it in a very wrong way. Um, but it, yeah, you're right. It, it's a very like powerhouse kind of desperate performance for his character. And it's just, it's really great. Um, number six is uh, mud. Uh, McConaughey uh, making here on the second time. Well, and he's got, yeah, he's got three of them on here, but this is the second one. And, uh, uh, you know, a story where 
two kids find this, you know, uh, guy on this island named Mud, uh, played by Matthew McConaughey, and one of the kids is played by uh, uh, Ty Sheridan, and that's uh, the first time most of us were introduced to him. He also hails from uh, Texas. Um, but Mud is just a really, it's a very simple story. It's a very sweet story. A very good, just like, you know, bonding type of movie between Mud and these two kids that try to help him. And then, you know, he's trying to run from the law. And, you know, it's a bit of a suspenseful movie. It's just, it, it's a really just, it's just a nice little movie. And uh, it's ex- it's extremely Mark Twain for people who want to see this. Right, that, that's, uh, a, that's a great comparison. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely Huck Finn without the racism. Um, and, <laughs> without and, uh, the racism. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for that disclaimer. Uh, it's great. Even when it becomes a movie about characters pulling out their guns and shooting at each other, it is rich. And this is probably the one that maybe should be on my list, honestly. I adore Mud, and I, I need to see it again. I haven't seen it in a while. Uh, I, I applaud you for this choice. I I, I love the I love this movie. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, it, go ahead. <laughs> it's fantastic. And uh, if you ever want to see like young Ty Sheridan act, like there's one particular scene where he breaks down, and I'm like, this is a kid, and yep. he's acting. This is fantastic. Uh, yeah, Mud is a great great film. Um, number five is a short term twelve. Uh, this is my first introduction to Brie Larson, Lakeith Stanfield, and Rami Malek. Um. And actually, John Gallagher Jr. Um, th- this was kind of like a just an assault on new upcoming um, acting in the best way possible. I was like, "Wow, this person's good. This person's good." There's, there's just too much to process. Um, but this is a story about you know uh, Brie Larson's character and her boyfriend Gallagher uh, Jr. They uh, are, are kind of in charge of this foster place, and they have to deal with the day and day kind of task of taking care of them and you know a lot of them are going through puberty and some of them you know might have suicidal thoughts and you know like Keith Stanfield's character he's turning 18 so like they have to let him go he doesn't know where to go or what to do it's just a really great uh film about um kind of that system the the fostering system and how um even though like these kids you know it's really hard for them to find a place and all that stuff like you know, the people that take care of them too, like they're heroes in a way of like, you know, being there for these kids that have nobody to begin with. And so it's just a really great drama. And I, I believe if it's still on there, do not quote me on this. It might be on Netflix still. Um, so please check it out if you uh, if you want to see Brie Larson um, and all of them uh, before they won their Oscars. <laughs> uh, all right. So number four is 12 Years a Slave. This one in Birth of a Nation, and it's 100% because I'm white. Um, definitely one of the most uncomfortable experiences I've ever sat through in the best way possible. Because I love when films can show how like just nasty our history is. And, you know, I have to sit there as a white person. I'm sure Joel feel, felt some type of way while watching it too, where you're just like, Wow. Like, like it just, it kind of just hits you in the face and you're just like, I can't believe this actually, you know, was allowed and it went on and everything. It's just, it's just insane. But you want to talk about Steve McQueen as a filmmaker, you know, he really likes to pull out like these kind of like emotional, like groundbreaking performances out of his actors, whether it be um, with this or shame or even widows, like it, it, even with something as widows, like that's just a that's a heist film, 
but like he still was able to get like class A like performances out of these uh, actors, and it's the same way with this one. I think it was the first time I was introduced to Chiwetel Ejiofor on a broad scale like that. Um, blown away by his same, performance. Same here. Right. Same and here. I, I, I understood that he was like in Serenity and Firefly. Didn't watch those shows and movies, sorry. Um, but he was phenomenal in this just to see where he started and where he ended up. And just the toll it took on his character was just absolutely devastating, but also um, very, very happy in a sense because he did get to finally be with his family even though he'd be 12 years away. Like, it's just... Ugh. Oh, it just, you know, it makes me cry just thinking about it. But, um, you know, all the people in it, they're uh, definitely white. Uh, most of them are disgusting. And it's some of the grossest, like, type of performances I've seen in a while. Not because I hate the actors. It's because their characters are, are so gross. Michael Fassbender. Uh, like, his character is one of those ones I don't even like to talk about. Because it's really just heinous. Um, but he is so convincing that I remember hearing a story about when they would shoot the movie, he would go back with, like, you know, McQueen and probably the producers and stuff. And he said when he watched the dailies, like, he couldn't even do it. Like, he said mm-hmm. it was just, it was so bad. And this was also the film where Lupita Nyongo was also introduced to most of us. She won her Oscar uh, for this film. It's a very haunting film, beautifully shot you know, very tenderly acted. It's just, it's, it's a powerhouse of a film. And, you know, <laughs> I, I think, it, I think if you are white, I think you should feel guilty to some extent <laughs> watching these movies. Cause if you don't, then there's probably an issue with you. But, uh, yeah, I did feel uncomfortable like with this one and birth of a nation. I, I say both those cause they both kind of came within a couple of years apart. And it, it's a very, it, it's a unique experience because, a lot of white people will not watch these type of movies. I understand why, um, but it, it's a very unique experience to watch that, realize that we have a disgusting stain on our history, and then you kind of look around and see like who actually came to watch out the watch the movie and just get everyone's kind of reaction to it. It's just it's kind of it's very surreal um, to watch these type of movies. Um, number three is the movie I skipped work for. It <laughs> was The Place Beyond the Pines. I actually got to meet meet uh, Derek Cianfrantz, uh which was mm. really cool, because I, I told him straight up, I said, I said, you and Ryan Gosling got robbed for Blue Valentine, and he was like, oh, thanks, man. Because, <laughs> you know, Michelle <laughs> Williams was the only one nominated for that movie that year, so... Yeah, pe- everybody was stunned by that, by the way. When it happened, I haven't seen Blue Valentine, I know, I know. Um, I've seen this in Light Between Oceans, uh, everybody was stunned by that, 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 uh, that Gosling didn't get in because people were thinking that if she got in, he got in and then she got in and he didn't get in and people were like, what? Yeah. So anyway, that, go ahead. that's not to take on, uh, Michelle's performance. Like both of them are extraordinary and, and they, they work together. They're in almost every single scene in the movie, like together. So yeah. that, that's kind of shocking to me that it, it didn't, um, get it. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a really uh, it's a really great one if you haven't checked out Blue Valentine. Now, the place beyond the pines is a very different story. I, I would say it's the it's like a pass the baton type of epic where we focus on one story, something happens to the character, but it, it still ties into the the second story, so to speak. So they're not short stories, like separate stories. It's one long movie, but 
whatever, like the consequences of the first story kind of affect the people in the second story because they are tied to the people um, in some way, shape, or form. And so it, it's kind of like this epic drama. And, you know, you have Gosling, you have uh, Eva Mendez, who, you know, before the other guys, I hadn't seen her in a movie in like, seemed like 30 years. Um, and now I, now granted, I realize that she's married to Gosling now. They have kids and stuff, so he's primarily doing all the acting and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, Ava, get back out there. Uh, you're good at what you do, and you're really good in this movie. Um, and, of course, you have uh, Bradley Cooper in this. I was first introduced to uh, Dane DeHaan, and uh, I was blown away by him. I was like, he's going to go places. He's gone places, but he hasn't really taken off yet, and I'm, I'm kind of irritated about that. But, um, yeah, but The Place Beyond the Pines is just a really – it's a really well acted movie. It's a it's kind of a thrilling movie. It's a really great drama. It's I can't really explain it. You just have to see it. It's it's very different in its structure. Like I said, it's a very past the baton type of movie, but I enjoy it nonetheless. My number two and my number one are couldn't be any more different from each other. Um, it's like, uh, yeah, I, I don't even know how to describe this combo here. But uh, number two is uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. I know a lot of people don't really care for this one because. A lot of people think that the excess um, that Martin Scorsese does in this film in terms of showing basically the same thing over and over again, the mistakes that Jordan Belford makes, just getting high, making a mistake, getting high, making a mistake, getting high, making a mistake. I can't. I think it's the point. I mean, it's, it's the American dream of excess in terms of drugs and wealth and what it can do to people. And once again, this is also an epic. It's three hours long. Um First time I ever went to a theater with reclining seats, uh, and uh, it was so worth it because it was such a long movie. But uh, that's the thing with Scorsese is that he can make a four or five hour long movie. We would never notice because he always <laughs> uh, has precision type of editing to his films because uh, Joel has stated before that he uses the same editor, correct? Yeah, pretty much always. I don't remember the last time they didn't work together. Right. So, yeah. So, so all all of the films that it, it she it's a uh, she right yeah Thomas Schoonmacher right I, I was like I, I was yeah. like I remember when Joel was talking I was like I believe he said it was a woman okay so every time when she directs a Scorsese film it, it's perfection like she's so good at what she does and she could easily have made this movie boring or just feel like way too long but even at three hours this movie breezes by. Like it's it nothing. feels like an hour and a half to me. I know it's yeah. it's disturbing on how short it feels. <laughs> like when you get out of it, you're like, "There's no way I wasted three hours of watching uh, Leonardo DiCaprio snort, you know, cocaine off someone's butt." So, so uh, that is a scene, by the way. Um, this is a this is a movie not for kids. Uh, this is yeah. definitely it's one of so the- it, it it's so interesting to me that people had a problem with the excess because when. Scorsese does one of his character studies, and that's what this is, about – well, really anybody. It doesn't have to be just a uh, historical person. The movie tends to be kind of an examination of how um, how excess has ruined their lives. And so right. he's, it's, al- it's a, he's it's almost always – yeah, it, it's a destruction. It's a dis- their, dis- their self-destruction. And – pretty much always is that right back to raging bull and so even that movie is 
excessive if you want to call it that because it's it's very very uh it's got very showboat editing the, uh, none of this is supposed to be like criticisms of raging bull this is all observations but it's showboat editing it's black and white photography when it doesn't technically need to be it just is and it's more and it's more striking that way so it's a it's a work of excess right back to raging bull and so when people say that i don't know like they understand I, I what they're talking about I don't now i mean there are movies like martin scorsese is in his 70s like whatever yeah. decision this man makes i will most likely trust him on his decision to do yeah. whatever he wants because he's he's so used he makes, to his craft by now that like how could you be like oh why did he do that it's like nah he yeah. he has a reason he's got a, he's got a reason for it and and this is a movie alongside um, what a lot of people call Fosazy, but I think it's great as American Hustle. Mm. Um, th- those two movies are kind of in the in the with mud, like right out right outside my top ten. It's it those three movies probably are my eleven, twelve, and thirteen, and they're the ones that I feel worst about. You know, in terms of like maybe I should have them on there um, because they're just. I mean. These two, and uh, specifically American Hustle and Wolf of Wall Street, are kind of a part of a series of movies in 2013, none of which happened to make it on my list, but all of which kind of examined American excess in a very, very specific kind of way. I mean, your favorite uh, Spring Breakers, we're about to get to that at your number one. I'm just Ooh. kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but Spring Breakers definitely did that, though. I, I don't think that you can uh, uh, deny that. No, um, it definitely did. You had American, it's just a matter of, yeah. you know, if you whether it did it well. or not. <laughs> right, right. I did. Uh, I know that you didn't. And it's one that I totally understand that about. Um, but also Pain and Gain from uh, Michael Bay. I love that movie. I know that a lot of people don't. Um, the Bling Ring, to some degree, probably a different era of excess than the others, um, or a different kind, a different source of it. But certainly within that vein, side effects I think even has a has a bit of that. All these movies were movies that I really appreciated, really liked, and yet none of them made it on my list. I I, I don't know how that happens. You think that at least one of them would, but maybe it's like a ten way tie outside my top ten. Uh, so yeah, that's it, where it, I am. It was a that's tough where year. I am with Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, yeah it was very. a tough year. Like I saw Wolf of Wall Street was the last thing I saw, so I had to. <laughs> take something out push stuff down like it was it was very hard to do but it's you know a lot of people um uh not just because it's you know recent or whatever a lot of people i i talked to that year that saw wolf of wall street they're just like wow that was like one of my favorites like like out of like uh scorsese's filmography so it's kind of amazing to me that even to this day he can still make movies that will uh be hailed as rewatchable to some people and you know classics and stuff, so that's that's awesome. But uh, my number one was the second press screening I ever did, um, and believe it or not, my first two were A twenty four, first one was Spring Breakers, and the second one, uh, Joel has already mentioned, is the Spectacular. Now, um, just like with Joel and Lady Bird, I have a soft spot for romance films. Um, and to be honest with you, if I were to redo this list, I would push it down to three. And I would put her in Before Midnight before it. But we're going to be talking about six years ago, Chase, because this is what I put. So spectacular now, you know, as Joel said, you know, Miles Teller, uh, Shailene Woodley, um, they strike a relationship in high school. Miles has a really severe alcohol problem. And that is uh, competently 
um, you know, reflected as Joel put, you know, it's not really like explored, but it's done. It does enough to where it, it, it showcases his character in a very, um, very sad way. Um, and, but also like we, we, he's not like a lost cause. We want him to get help type of deal, but it's a, it's a part of his character and it, it does it just right. And of course, Shailen Willie, she's going to graduate and go to college. And so what are they going to do with the relationships? And they're, they're trying to figure out each other and what they're going to do with, um, the love that they have. And are they going to keep going forward? It's just, I just love movies like that because as teenagers, we're dumb and we don't really know what we want. And I think seeing that as an older person, like we, we can go, Oh, this is stupid. Why are you going after this guy when you can go to college? Just like, but we've all been there. We've all, you know, had crushes. We've all had relationships in high school. I didn't personally, but you know, seeing people go through this stuff and not really thinking straight and, it's love and love will do this to you type of deal. And, and when you grow up, you can kind of reflect on it. I just, I, I love that. And it's, it's a time capsule movie. You, you get to see two young people who are just having fun with each other, but also realize that it could be serious. And it's just, I don't know. It's, I, lo- I love the um, kind of like conflict that teenagers have to go through when it comes to these type of movies and stuff. I just, I just love it. It's just a really wonderful type of movie. And you know, it, it, it struck a chord with me. Um, you know, I never, like I said, I really had a relationship in high school. So you're probably like wondering why it's because I, I envied that and maybe seeing these type of movies, you know, I just, I really get kind of emotional watching them and you know, maybe that's why I have no idea. Maybe I should ask a therapist. Um, but it was also a movie that was introduced to me through, uh, Shailene Woodley. you never really had seen her. Um, I, I might have watched Divergent. Uh, at well, some she point. was she was also in a in a movie that unfortunately I won't get to it at 2011, but it's a really good movie, The Descendants. And I don't know if you right, saw right. that. I, I still never saw it. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, that's where that... that's where I had seen her, and I was like, wow, this she's gonna go places. And then this was her next movie, and uh, yeah, she was even better in this than she was in that. It, yeah. Yeah, really right. good tell. Right, I I know that like uh, uh Brian would talked about that movie endlessly when I first met him. Um, yeah, <laughs> he loves that movie. Uh, yeah, so spectacular now. Watch it if you love those type of movies. So to recap, uh, for the top ten, we'll go ahead and close this episode out here. Uh, number ten, we have uh, Dallas Buyers Club. Number nine, Before Midnight. Number eight, Gravity. Seven Prisoners. Six Mud. Five Short Term. Twelve. Uh, four, 12 Years a Slave, three, The Place Beyond the Pines, two, The Wolf of Wall Street, and one, Spectacular. Now, if I was to redo the list, I would change this thing up, like 100%. Everything would be all over the place. I would move stuff up, take stuff off, move stuff down, um, put new things on there. So, yeah, if I were to redo it, it would be way different. But if we're going to be talking about what I had on Episode 7 of this podcast, yes, that is when I did this episode, Episode seven. Yeah, it's why. Yeah, it's why I, I. It's why I have to basically just kind of lock down a list that I'm vaguely proud of, and then recognize that it's going to change up a lot because you know I, I'm pretty I'm pretty confident in this list. I love these ten movies. I think that they're really well they're accomplished, but you know Mud could be on there any day of the week, and it could be anywhere on the list. Well, really. it's like it's like what um, you and I discuss like we mature. We see things differently yeah. and, you know, movies will strike us differently. And, you know, as you know, we're talking beforehand, like you and I are 
getting better at criticism and stuff. So we're starting to yeah. see more things. And it's just, it's very interesting to see us both evolve and be like, man, why was this on our list? Like we were idiots. So, uh, and then it'll be, and it'll be cool to, too, because of course this is all building up to, um, again, for those uninitiated who are still listening to this, um, we're trying to build up to doing like a two part, you know, kind of top something of the decade. Uh, I don't know the number yet, but probably a top 20 or something, you know, in two parts. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of hits where what's, what are the movies that really stayed with us? And so, you know, uh, <laughs> and it's kind of smart then that Chase has this plan to just look at the 2013 version of himself because before Midnight was his number nine in 2013. And now, you know, it probably could show up in a top 20 of the decade. Um, and it's just interesting because you always think of that being in kind of the 10 percentile almost of the of the decade otherwise. And so um, or the nine, whatever the whatever the other the, the version of that phrase that means it's really low is um and me you know i could have some of these that are just not in the top five it's really interesting to see how the decade comes together as you grow every critic does it i'm telling you people people reflect people you know um when who was it uh oh yeah it was ebert um when in 1980 I'm pretty sure he had Raging Bull at his top as his top choice of the 1980s. And in 1980, it was his number 2 because The Black Stallion had come out and he was totally bowled over by that. But whenever he made his top 10 films of the 80s list, The Black Stallion wasn't on it. So it's just it's both about how you felt in the moment and so for Chase in the moment before Midnight was his number 9 and that's where he put it because numbers are meaningless on a top 10. And then now, you know, obviously he's saying that it would be somewhere near the top or at the top of a list like this. And so that means that it's got a greater chance of being somewhere on a top whatever of a decade, you know, near nearer the top. And uh, yeah, it's just fun seeing how all that how that shakes out. But in any case, yes, this is the end of this episode. We went a little longer on this than I anticipated. But um, next week, our episode review is going to be on Hellboy. Uh, the new iteration of the, uh, the the comic book character with David Harbour. Not super excited, although I'm excited to see it with you, Chase, because we'll be seeing it together. Well, and um, also tell tell the lovely listeners the next two episodes we will be in the same. Yeah, room. so <laughs> so no, we so, have to deal yes, with any connections exactly. or anything. Yeah, exactly. We'll be uh, we'll be doing our um, uh, Hellboy review and our and I think our our big. Uh, episode about the the festival altogether so really fun gonna be great and then of course the week after that is avengers endgame so um it's 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 a big month it's great it's a great uh i'm i'm so excited for this month so um all right so if you're looking for my writing you can go to joel on film.com i should have reviews uh this week of um shazam as well as the best of enemies which i see tomorrow Pet Cemetery, which I saw last night, and uh, a movie called An Acceptable Loss, which I just recently caught up on streaming. So should have reviews of those. And then uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Real Joel Copeling. It's R-E-E-L Joel Copeling. That's J-O-E-L-C-O-P-L-I-N-G is my last name. Um, and then you can follow my stuff on Letterboxd. I'm pretty active on there. 
got Joel, uh, Jay Copeling, um, and I think that's pretty much it. If you want to follow my writing during the festival within the next couple of weeks, go to DallasMovieScreenings.com. I'll be pairing with uh, with Chase on on the movies we see uh, to review them. So uh, that's where I am. Chase, what about you, sir? Yeah, if you guys want to follow me uh, at Twitter, it's at RealChaseLee. And, of course, this podcast has its own Twitter page, at RealMeInPodcast. And, of course, uh, with uh, you know this show, whether you're listening on CastBox, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever, please spread this around and let people know what is up. Uh, I did post uh, three mini-reviews uh, this past week, if you missed them, of uh, Diane, Stormboy, and The Wind. Um, three films that were sent to me for review. I went ahead and reviewed them, um, so they're on there. This coming week, uh, between uh, this episode and the Hellboy episode, I will have a mini-review of Little and uh, Mary Magdalene, so that will be a, a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, uh, keep a lookout for that. But that is this week's episode. Uh, you know, Joel, it, it's been fun, um, but you're right. It's gonna, this is going to be a fun month. I, I can't wait. So uh, this is episode 271 of the Real Man Colony Movie Podcast. I am Chase. That is Joel over there. We'll see you guys next week for Hellboy episode 272. You guys are awesome. Stay cool. Peace out. You know, I got to find out a better outro. Bye. Bye. Are you texting? My therapist. You text with your therapist? Text, video chat, call. Yep. That sounds too easy. How did you find her? I just went to betterhelp.com slash save. She's a licensed therapist and it's all online. I connect when it's convenient for me and don't waste time driving anywhere. Plus it's affordable. I wonder if I should try it. It's great to talk to someone in confidence. She's helped me sort out quite a few things. And right now you save 10% off the first month when you go through betterhelp.com slash save. Betterhelp.com slash save. Got it.